2020, the year nobody asked for, but we all received, is finally done and in the books. But what were the best and worst films of this terrible hell year? I'm Mike. And I'm Darren. And this is Popscorn. Welcome to Popscorn, the Final Entertainment Movie Review Podcast, and today we're going down all of the films, probably, there wasn't a lot released this year, all of the films released in 2020, we're going to tell you our best films, our worst films, we're going to review some films we haven't reviewed yet, it's going to be a grand old time, and it's going to be the biggest middle finger to this goddamn year, because this is not what we were expecting, I've got a very different top 10 than what I thought I was going to have, I don't know about you Darren. This is the worst top 10 movie list i've ever done <laughs> by a country mile i think the top three are the only three movies i could definitively say they would still be here in a you know better year any yeah. other year this top three would probably still make it not necessarily as a top three but they'd still be in contention but oh boy it came very close to me having to put a movie i actively don't like on at number 10 that wow. was that was as bad as it was but alas there's lots of good things that we can talk about there was it's made it slightly more interesting at least as opposed to the usual fair entertainment formula of marvel or star wars <laughs> yeah this might be the first one since we started popcorn that doesn't end with either a marvel or a star wars movie at number one at least for both of us i'm sure there must have been an occasion where one of us picked something else but the other one would usually have towed the company line. But this is definitely the first one where both of us haven't picked that. Just there's no option to. Um, you can't just have, oh, I watched Spider-Man uh, Far From Home on repeat. Does that count? Um, unfortunately, that's not an See, option for us. This is what boils my piss about uh, a lot of the um, uh, best games of the year things coming out. People are like putting their top 10 list together with games that didn't come out in 2020. I'm like, well, no, that's not how that works. If that was how that works, the best movie of every year would be The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. You just watch it every year and it would win. That's not how this works. No. I will say, though, I don't know about your list, but my list certainly has been saved by the fact that the UK gets all the Oscar movies way later than America. That has helped immensely with this list. Which is the same way that we got to delay Assassin's Creed being the worst movie of whatever year it came out in America because we got it in January. Same thing happened with uh, Coco because we didn't get that until well after America. Four months, I think, we had to wait before we got Coco. But yeah, it's really helped. I can only imagine how much worse this list would be if that hadn't have happened. Um, but before we go any further, Merry Christmas, yes. Maggle. Uh, oh, here we go. It is now time for the traditional reading of every film we fail to watch in 2020. Uh, as usual, accompanied by a little Spanish flea. Um, so, prepare yourself, and I, that music is going to start playing now. Trolls World Tour. <coughs> <laughs> no, that's about it. Uh, <laughs> hey, you forgot Scoob. <laughs> Sorry, Scoob also. Yeah, that was my killer joke. Um, <laughs> Just we were not done Trolls World Tour. That's literally the only one we missed. We got them all. Um, so I'll give you the actual list. Because uh, <laughs> considering yeah. 
it was hard for anything to actually come out. We missed a fair amount. <laughs> it's a lot of this has been out on streaming. Like I'm, yeah. I'm perusing over the list now, and a lot like. The first half of it is just stuff we missed between the months of January and March. And the rest of it is just, it was on Amazon and we had too many things to watch. So, yeah. Uh, Darren, please continue. I will start again. And the music will start now. Trolls World Tour, Bad Boys for Life, Doolittle, Wonder Woman 1984, The Invisible Man, The Call of the Wild, The Crudes, The New Age, Fantasy Island, Bloodshot, Emma, The Witches, Scoob, The Spongebob Movie, Sponge on the Run, Military Wives, Just Mercy, Coming to America, News of the World, The Devil All the Time, Borat Subsequent Movie Film, My Spy, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Mank Greyhound Possessor, The Old God, Portrait <laughs> of a Lady on Fire, Irresistible, Vivarium? Vivarium. Vivarium. Uh, misbehavior, The Hunt, The Way Back, Inheritance, and I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Oh, Darren, don't do that. I know. It was just such a short list, Magla. I don't see the point of continuing. Oh. And also, we didn't see the film I'm Thinking of Ending Things on Netflix. No. <laughs> so, you yeah, missed that's, one. That's a shorter list than usual. Um, <laughs> it usually takes a lot longer than that, but... Uh, I'm at least very happy we didn't get to watch, where was it? Mile Rainey's Black Bottom Mank Greyhaim Possessor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's funnier about that is that all four of those films are in Oscar contention. <laughs> we are now going to do, as per usual, go through the entire year in chronological order and give ourselves uh, 60 seconds to talk about a film, 30 seconds if we've both seen it. Uh, these are just the films that haven't made a top 10 somewhere for us. Um, or that haven't got a review. Or that haven't got a review. Um, so, I have... Uh, we have two... I have two in January, but we have full reviews on both Jojo Rabbit and 1917. We do. I have ten. You have ten? <laughs> it was Oscar season, Darren. Uh, oh, this is a busy, busy time for me. Um, so, no, okay. I'll, I'll put ten minutes on then. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no. Ten including Jojo Rabbit in 1917. Okay, I'll put eight on. Um, and I will I will buzz you every minute or so. Okay, I'm just going to go down the list. Um, tell me when you've started, and then just go, just make a buzzing noise when I have to shift films. Cool. Right. Three, two. Actually, hang on. Two seconds. I think a, a number of these are actually in my top ten, so I need to now do some horrible maths. That's one. That's two. And that is three. Are we mm, now, Darren? Are we counting films that are in our worst that we're going to talk about later? I would also count those. Yes. Okay, in that case, I only need one... Oh, hang on. <laughs> I only need <laughs> one minute. Should have thought this out. Uh, one, two, three. I need four minutes on the clock, please. Okey-cokey. Ready? Yes, I am. Begin. I saw Richard Jewell in January. It's a very good film, if entirely uninspiring so to say uh, it concerns the story of um i forget which olympic games it was but it was one that was hosted in america i think the seattle games i'm not entirely sure uh, and the story of the um the head you describe it's like kind of like a security guard richard jewell and how he discovers a bomb that has been planted at those games the then story then kind of just spirals out into did richard set this up himself was this all um you know, a conspiracy because he wants attention. He looks creepy. Is he actually creepy? He lives with his mom. That's weird, isn't it? 
it's it's a very interesting story and an interesting look at how the American psyche kind of evaluates people on the fringes of society. But what it actually is is just a acting masterclass from Paul Walter Hauser. Everyone else in the film is pretty good as well. Sam Rockwell actually turns in a really good performance. But Paul Walter Hauser's portrayal of Richard Jewell Dave. is entire Oh, God. Um, the Personal History of David Copperfield uh, came out in January as well. It's the new film by Armando Iannucci and obviously is an adaptation of the Charles Dickens novel David Copperfield. The reason that this film is so good and just narrowly missed out on my top ten is because it's a beautifully shot film with a wonderful, wonderful cast. Uh, it's been noted that uh, Armando Iannucci wanted to do colorblind casting, which resulted in uh, people like Benedict Wong and um, I yeah, can't think of his name, Peter... Deb Patel, Peter Capaldi, um, Tilda Swinton playing all people pretty much from the same family. Uh, what it actually meant, though, is you just got a great calibre of acting. It's a wonderful retelling of this story and one that just looks like a painting on every single frame. And obviously that is a bit of a cliche, but the colour palette is just so lovely. It's kind of imagine kind of the mid the mid range between like vibrant and pastel it just looks like it was made to be an illustrated novel and that's what i really really love about it on top of that they really bring the comedy on this Deep. one when you okay uh, the gentleman came out in january as well it's uh, guy Ritchie's new film of snatch and lockstock fame uh, hot off the hills of aladdin of all things uh, he then decides to make a film about um this is going to sound stupid but an american running the british weed trade it sounds stupid. It is stupid, but it was actually a really fun time. Um, Matthew McConaughey puts in a really good performance um, as, as the lead character, the American that is the head of this drugs outfit, so to speak. And it concerns a, an ensuing gang war. It manages to blend in grime culture, like UK grime music culture, which was a really interesting swing and something that we haven't seen from Guy Ritchie as of yet. Considering that most of his films normally take place in the modern day, the fact that we've not got this yet is difficult to comprehend but he finally does it with this one um i think the best character has to be you're not is it colin firth no um colin farrell who's just brilliant in his own just so ah uh, weathering with you is uh, makoto shinkai's new movie that came out in january as well i didn't watch it until last month um it is very much the lesser product compared to Your Name, which is just one of my favourite films ever made. Uh, the story concerns a girl who can pray the rain away. Uh, she's dubbed <laughs> the sunshine girl. I wish I was making that up, Darren. Um, basically, she's able to command the weather uh, and they then start a little business and kind of rent out this service people can pray for sunshine in the on the continuing rain that's happening through tokyo but every time she prays a little bit of her starts to disappear she's actually connected to the sky the heavens it's a little bit of a weird twist they commit to a really interesting and impactful ending that i didn't think we were going to get and that's what dragged this movie up, because other than that, it just would have been a lesser film compared to Your Name. Whilst the music is still great and the visuals are still interesting to look at, the plot just comes down to a basic-ass love story. Beep. And that's really disappointing. Well done. Quick thing. Um, yep. I had completely forgotten that I do have watched the David Copperfield movie. Oh, right. <laughs> that tells you everything I need to tell you about that movie. It left no impression on me whatsoever. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, you clearly didn't enjoy it as much as I did. I thought it was really no, good. No, I. It was fine. I, I. I laughed a little bit, I guess, but it just again, I completely forgot about it. So that doesn't really. Uh, 
<laughs> to, to really speak highly of the movie, in my opinion. So, yeah, uh, ah well. Um, right. Peter Capaldi was just so good as Mr. McCorber. Just two seconds on that because he was so good. <laughs> I genuinely laughed out loud at you're taking an honest man's chicken. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I remember him being quite funny. Yeah. And I feel like Tilda Swinton also had some moments, but that is literally all I can remember. Fair enough. Um, right, February. Uh, I only have one move to talk about, but it is one that we have a review for. Uh, that being the Birds of Prey and the Fabulous and Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. Yep, we do have a review of that. Go and find that. Uh, Sonic the Hedgehog also came out in this month. Yep, um, we have exactly. a review of that. Um, unfortunately, the other two films that I watched in February, uh, we've got one each on the good and bad list. So more on Parasite and Greed later on. Sweet. Uh, we move swiftly on to March. Um, hang on. Well, to be fair, Birds of Prey is not coming back up for me on any of my lists. Is it coming up mm-hmm. for you? No. Do you want to do 30 seconds on that just to recap what we thought about it? Uh, yeah, let's pad it. Why not? Just because I want to say something. Because uh, <laughs> I worry I'm going to be... It's going to be like the Oscar episode again. I'm going to be very quiet. Uh, right, I'll give myself 30 seconds. And we go. Uh, this did narrowly miss out on the top 10 because I went back and listened to a review. Uh, there are some standout bits. The action in particular is pretty good. But it is ultimately quite a pointless movie that really serves no purpose other than isn't Harley Quinn quirky. It could have been more. They could have taken it into a more you know, psychological um, effort and really, you know, examined her relationship with the Joker, but instead they often opt to just have fun times. Uh, oh, is that 30 I... seconds? Okay, um, I, this film isn't really troubling the top 10 for me in any way. It did very briefly mingle with the worst films of the year until I watched a lot of bad films. Um, the thing that really breaks this film for me is both Rosie Perez and Ella, Ella J. Renee Montoya and Cassandra Kane, respectively, who one is a completely unbelievable, terrible drunk cop character that somehow becomes mother figure. And the other is just a very thoroughly unlikable child that doesn't really fit with the themes of the movie. Um, anyway, yeah, it sucked. <laughs> I've missed these distinct reviews. Um, OK, March. I only have Onward Down and there will be more on that later. I have Honeyland, but I did review that in the Oscars episode. That's the one about the bees, isn't it? That's the one about the... Um, is it, were they Turkish? Were they, uh, North the, Macedonian. Uzbe- North Macedonian beekeepers, that's the one, yeah. Um, that did release in March. Obviously, I watched it well before then. Um, do we want a couple of seconds to recap that, or should we move on? Uh, I mean, do you want a minute, or do you want 30 seconds? Uh, give me 30 seconds. I'll give you 30 seconds from now. It's a really good documentary and one that's shot in a very interesting style. I would recommend if you are going to go through the nominees of the 2020 Oscars, although why would you with the 2021 on the horizon? This is one of the ones from the documentary category to watch. Um, it's it's certainly a lot more interesting than the more straightforward um, ones in that category. It's far better than the one that won. I did not enjoy the factory. Um yeah, I really, really enjoyed this. It was a perspective I never thought I would have, and that is why you watch Oscar nominations. Lovely. Um, okay, we move swiftly on. Right. I don't, I've swiftly just realized, onward. Sorry. Ah, I don't even have May or April written down here, so I have a complete two-month blank space. Hopefully, Maggle can fill. Uh, yeah, you can give me. Um, you can give me two minutes. 
Actually, no, give, give me one minute because I can do both in 30 seconds. Sick. One minute on the clock starting now. In April, I watched Les Miserables, and not the Les Miserables you're thinking of. This one is an entirely new film and was part of the Oscar nominations for Best Foreign Picture. Given the fact that it was going up against Parasite tells you how much of an impression that film left. Whilst it is an interesting look at police brutality and kind of mirrors the real-life events of the Yellow Jacket riots that happened in Paris, it falls quite flat in terms of just being a story about police brutality and kind of coming down on the lesser communities. And it's something that's been done in far better films that this one just kind of proves how much I don't like French cinema anymore I would just recommend just watching La Haine instead of Les Miserables at least then you're getting a new and interesting voice you're just you're not just getting a really polished French film that basically feels like we're going back to the 60s again it was fine it just wasn't great um are we still on time Darren you have 10 seconds Oh, okay. In May, I saw The Lovebirds it's one of the worst comedies I've ever seen I don't know why Kumail Nanjiani is a thing I remember you mentioning that. And I think Fucking it popped, shite, Darren. It popped, <laughs> it popped up on something. Um, I'm going <laughs> to talk about Downhill. Uh, this is the uh, black comedy drama from uh, Will Ferris and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Um, basically, an avalanche happens on a skiing holiday and Will Ferrell saves his phone and runs away instead of trying to help his family. Um, it's meant to be like a semi-serious take of, like, well, how do they recover from such an event? Um, unfortunately, it's neither funny nor dramatic. It's just kind of there. It very much just plods along of this kind of kind of shitty holiday movie. Uh, it's not good. It's much less than the sum of its parts. There's a lot. There's a really good cast here that you feel really could take this somewhere. And apparently, it's a um, it's a remake of a Scandinavian film that was meant to be really really good. Unfortunately, it is not. Yeah, I'd heard that, that the original just far exceeded the Will Ferrell version, which, it, to be honest, doesn't shock me. It really does. Like, I was ho- I was pulling for it, but yeah, it's boring. But having said that, in June, there was Eurovision Fire Saga. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was We've got a review of that, but that was a great film. I really enjoyed that. It was, it was holding out at number 10 for a while on my list, but I didn't much care for it, so I should tell you the quality of my top 10. Um, <laughs> oh, God. It was fine. Uh, anything else to add for June, Magal? Um, in June, uh, I saw The King of Staten Island. We're going to be talking about that later on. Cool. Um, and The Five Bloods also came out in June. I watched it last night. Can you give me a minute, please? I can give you a minute, sir. Begin. Um, this is very much what happens when Spike Lee gets hit a big ego from getting nominations with Black Landsman, because The Five Bloods is in every single way a lesser product. It is a very convoluted story with some, I must say, excellent cinematography and brilliant performances from the cast all over. And it includes one of the last performances by Chadwick Boseman, which is obviously a joy to watch. But it's a very confused film about what it wants to say. And ultimately... Spike Lee's films tend to have a message. The one in Black Klansman was very simple. You think that the Ron Starwood story is an, about trying to infiltrate Nazis is a product of the past, when in fact we're kind of seeing that mirroring in the future. The Five Bloods tries to do that with the Vietnam War, but as far as I can tell, the takeaway message of that movie is please support Black Lives Matter, which is not particularly a bad message, but it's just very much dropped at the end with absolutely no context to the story. And did you know that a lot of black people were killed in Vietnam? 
Now, it's interesting to know that the ratio of black people killed in Vietnam is like plus 60 percent in terms of American casualties. Why not make the film about that? The film is actually about trying to retrieve um, CIA approved gold that they buried in Vietnam to keep it away from getting back to a government. It's a very selfish movie, not only because of the um, the motivation of the characters, but also because it just feels it feels like it genuinely just feels like Spike Lee is just wanking onto <laughs> film reel at this point. It's just so self-serving. This was a film made by Spike Lee for Spike Lee, and I'm not sure for anyone else. So I can't recommend it. There is a better film about the Vietnam War coming later on, and it ain't going to be this one, though. Right. I mean, you were on a roll there, so I didn't want to stop you in a minute, but then it culminated in, this is Spike Lee wanking. Um... <laughs> yeah, don't get me wrong, I love Spike Lee. I think he makes some very interesting movies, but The Five Bloods was neither interesting. Like, there's a one very tense scene, which is fucking brilliant, and outside of that, it's just inconsequential to its own story. It's such a disappointment. Um, OK, July, um, we have um, there's two movies on here that I can give 30 seconds. We do have reviews of both Mulan and Tenet, um, but they aren't on any of the lists. So I can. Tenet was August. Tenet was August? Tenet was August. I don't think I've updated this list. Um, Tenet was August. So Mulan came out in July. Um Wait, we don't have a review of Mulan, do we? Well, I've not seen it, so you can have a full oh, minute if you want to. Hell to the yes, here we go. Um, let me just double check one thing. I'm pretty sure it's not on the list. It is not. It is currently sat at number 11. Good times. Um, right, minute. Um, so Mulan is a weird beast. I mean, all the trailers, it looked like they were actually going to go... Pretty hardcore with this, as hardcore as this is ever likely to go, in that it looked like an actual Chinese war film, which I'm like, that's fantastic. All of your live-action remakes have been criticised for just being, like, basically page-for-page, word-for-word remakes. See Lion King, Jungle Book. I thought this would be the one where they actually try and do something new, and they do in that it doesn't have music in it, and, you know, some of the characters like Wushu have been stripped out to make it more serious, but the problem is it then kind of robs it of the charm and some of the personality that the animated film has the lead actress in particular is fine but very self-serious and that kind of robs the film of any joy but not at the expense of being a cool action movie when the action does finally turn up it's not really well shot enough to you know compensate for all the things they've taken out of this movie i'm not saying that this means they should have just remade the original but keeping some of that personality and charming there seemed a lot more critical than it was just to try and prove that you know we can make slightly more serious movies without really going for it yeah i I kind of got the impression that it was going to be a bit weird and i'll tell you for why because there were shots in the trailers and i'm not sure how much of this plays into the actual plot of what can only be described as an evil necro witch yeah she's she's in there a lot so that's where that's some of the new stuff they've put in there is that they wanted to, you know, have some action shots where it's her just skipping around, but she's such a weird character in the context of the movie that she kind of flits between being a good guy and she's a bad guy and she's this and she's that. It's just, it's trying to serve too many masters, this movie. It's trying yeah. to, to, to be too many things without really having a a sense of personality itself. I felt if it was funnier, it would everything could have been 
whacked up a little bit without necessarily turning anything else down. And I think it would have been better if it was funnier. It would have probably still been in the top ten. If the action was better, it would have been in the top ten. If it really went for, like, not hardcore gore or anything like that, but it really shown the effects of war, that would have been nice as well. But it just, it never really wants to dip its toe. It wants to be seen to be doing that, but it never actually really gets its hands dirty with anything. That is the problem, isn't it? Because there are some good Chinese war films. There, there are some really, really good ones. Red Cliff comes to mind. That was a really good mm. film. And you're all you're obviously going to get a sanitized version when it comes to Disney. I think this is why I never felt the urgency to watch it. That and not particularly having that fond memory of Mulan. I like it. It's not my favorite of the 2000s Disney's films, though. Right. Fair enough. I, it's, it's it's my fiance's favorite film essentially so we and, and she liked it i'm not saying that I uh, this is it wasn't a bad movie necessarily like i said it was it is sat at number 11 again in a strong gear would be anywhere near that high but it's fine but it just it leaves no in completely it was tracking to be the highest grossing movie of the year because i think everyone was so excited by the trailers it doesn't live up to that at all august uh, we have oh, a... hold on a second. Oh. Uh, July, I just need to say that Hamilton was released on Disney+. Plus. More on that later. Um, exactly. We also had How to Build a Girl. More on that later. Oh, I forgot about that as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, okay, well, I'm not mentioning that later, so I'm just going to have 30 seconds okay. real quick to talk about How to Build a Girl. Uh, this is the uh, semi-autobiographical um, story of Caitlin Moran, the author um, where they have Bernie Feldstein, an American, trying to do our accent. Uh, doesn't really work. It's kind of all accents at all times. Um, and it's a kind of really unlikable movie. It did occasionally make me laugh, which is why it didn't make my worst films of the movie, of the year, because it at least did that. But it's not anything more than just kind of, almost like you said about Spike Lee, it's kind of Caitlin Moran glamorising her own life. Yeah, I have much stronger thoughts about that. We'll Ooh. get to it later. We'll get to it later. Um, there was one more film in July that I actually saw, and I'm not mentioning later on. Um, do, would you mind giving me a minute on the clock? You've got a minute from name. I saw Palm Springs in July. Um, it was the it was debuted on Hulu of all things, so obviously I had to watch it through Netflix. Um, and by Netflix, I mean a dodgy app. It's really <laughs> good. It's basically what if Groundhog Day took place at a wedding. And it's surprisingly brilliant. Uh, Andy Samberg plays um, a guy who's basically trapped in this time loop who accidentally brings another one of the guests from the time loop into it with him. Um, she's played by Kristen Malati. Um And basically she starts freaking out like I'm living the same day over again. And then you've got jaded Andy Samberg in the corner like, yeah, I've been doing this for probably about five years and he's just living it up. He's, he thinks, well, I'm at a all paid expenses resort. I'm here at a wedding. I may as well have fun with it. Um, that is until they start uh, getting hunted by J.K. Simmons as Roy, who is another person who Sandberg accidentally trapped in the time loop when they both got high together. Um, it sounds dumb and it is very, very dumb. What it is, though, is that it has an interesting story um in regards to kind of like forging a relationship where every day is the same and also some properly laugh out loud comedy the caster is really good it's shot pretty competently genuinely it's interesting Eight. to note that this is um sorry it might be an oscar contention which is weird to say would not be in a stronger year but eh, it was good 
I have been desperately trying to find this movie on one of the various streaming services I have and Sky Movies and cannot find it for love nor money. Yeah, this is the problem. When we when we can't get Hulu or HBO Max in this country, we have to resort to other methods. It's not great. Again, all this Wonder Woman 1984 is underperforming at the box office. I'm like, well, yes. <laughs> it's because it hasn't released over it. Well, it has, but like... It has. There's, there's about five towns in this godforsaken yeah. country that can go and watch it. Yeah, yeah. It's ridiculous. Um, right, August um, has, well, Bill and Ted Face Music, more on that later, and New Mutants, more on that later. Uh, Tenet, we have a full review of. Um, yep. Would you like to join me in my 30 seconds? Um, sure, because or this is isn't going to come up later? for me again. Okay, fantastic. Um, oh, wait, oh, hang on, did it? I have to double check one of the lists. No, it's okay. not on there. Let's let's have it. Let's have it. Okay. Um, would you like to go first? I would. Start the start the clock for me, Darren. Go for it. Uh, this is a basically the most inconsequential Nolan movie of all time. It's just not that good, and also not that bad. It's got some very interesting ideas. It's got some very strong performances from both Robert Pattinson and john david washington but it is so far up its own fucking ass it's back in its own stomach bile it's just it's just one of the most wanky ideas just poorly constructed and poorly told to the audience and yet somehow is still not as bad as interstellar that's what makes it truly remarkably unspectacular i at one point was i had to watch more movies at the end of the year because this was at one point by default almost sat on my top 10 but also was troubling my worst films of the year it's that polarizing i have now frankly washed it out of my top 10 so i can say that i can i really dislike this film and would like to put it out of its uh, memory for all of time because it is such a wanky movie oh god i'm glad we don't have to talk about tenant anymore uh what, uh what month are we on uh we're on august ah i have one more oh Go on, I'll give you one minute, starting from now. I saw An American Pickle. It's a weird film, but I kind of really enjoyed it. Um, you've got uh, Seth Rogen playing both Herschel and Ben Greenbaum. Um, the basic plot is a, a guy in, like, I think it's the 1800s, something like that, mm -hmm. um, falls into uh, a pickle vat and is basically preserved and awoken in present day. Uh, he then goes out to discover his family to see that, you know, the the um, Eastern European Russian immigrants have come over to New York and they're thriving. And he's looking for his sort of like his successor. It turns out Ben is just a failing app developer because, of course, there has to be one modern thing pushed into this film. So Herschel kind of tries to outdo him by becoming a pickle salesman. And what happens can only be described as very wacky. Uh, because he becomes a viral sensation, followed by he starts putting out horrific, dated um, opinions on Twitter, which leads him to become the centre of like a riot. And it's just, it's very odd. It's a very strange film. But I must say, it at least got a few laughs out of me, and it did hold my attention. It wasn't troubling either list. It wasn't troubling the top ten or the bottom five. Mm -hmm. But I enjoyed it. It was something to watch in <laughs> in August. Jesus. It was it was better than Tenet. There you go. The pickle movie's better than Tenet. Wow. Um, right, September. Um, I have Enola Holmes, which I will be mentioning later. Interesting. Um, I have Love Guaranteed. That won't take long. Um, that's going to take me 30 seconds. Uh, the only 
real positive thing I have to say about Love Guaranteed, which isn't a bad movie, it's just kind of a very run-of-the-mill Netflix rom-com, is that it inspired my pitch Netflix movies that fit this criteria, because this one was so formulaic and so by the numbers that it made me think, my God, this must be easy. For further proof of this, please do listen to our Pitch Intention episode, Pitch Any Netflix Movie You Want, in 30 Minutes. <laughs> Boom. Yep. A review and a plug in 30 seconds, that's not bad. Uh, I love it. That is optimization. Promote synergy. <laughs> like a boss. Uh, anything else to mention in September? Uh, well, the New Mutants came out. I've no doubt that we're both going to be talking about that later on. Um, Bill and Ted came out. I am talking about that later on. Are you, though? I am. Okay, good. And uh, Trial of the Chicago 7 was also released on Netflix in September. I am talking about that later on. Fantastic. Uh, October had Hubie Halloween. There will be more on that later. <laughs> I just don't know why you trouble yourself with Adam Sandler movies that oh, aren't know. uncut gems. I know, I know. More on that later. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I don't have anything for October or November, so that's good. Oh, me neither. Cool. Um, right, December. Um, I got There's a few that I am going to mention on the worst list. I'll save them for a second. Cool. Um, there was um, a brand new film uh, called Happiest Season. Have you seen it, Michael? I have not. Let's hear about it. Right. Uh, so this is a another semi-autobiographical um, movie about the writer and her experience of coming out to her family during the holidays. Uh, it stars Christian Stewart, um, who is a lesbian in this film, and apparently is in real life now. Who knew? I think she's bisexual. Anyway, um, she has a long-term girlfriend, uh, but she is going to meet the parents. They find it on the drive there that she hasn't actually come out to her parents yet, and they think that Kirsten Stewart is just her friend. And it's kind of that. It's it's the it's your typical, oh, they don't really know, and let's have some wacky instances of them nearly finding out. Uh, Dan Levy's in it as well from Shit's Creek, which is the reason why we ended up watching it. Uh, he's a bit of a peripheral character, but when he turns up, he's the funniest thing in the movie. Uh, it's fine. It's a it's a pretty nondescript holiday movie. I don't think it's going to be making the Christmas um, playlist anytime soon. But it certainly wasn't the worst two hours I've spent. I'm probably shorter than that. But uh, yeah, it's fairly inoffensive comedy. It tries to have a point at the end, but her parents are so... Basically, the family that Kirsten Stewart is trying to win over are all awful human beings so you kind of wanted to leave at the end it doesn't have the ending you want because you're like no don't stay with her she was ashamed to come out to the lesbian for a month get out of this it's a much less than it's cash like should be able to put out because it's also got Aubrey Plaza in it it's got um uh Alison Brie in it as well um uh, it's just got a lot of good comedy people they're like you yeah, probably should be doing better than this uh, and yet it doesn't do that. So, yeah, that was Happiest Season. <laughs> interesting. Very yeah, interesting. Um, yeah. That sounds like something that should have made your worst list, like possibly like, towards the bottom. No, because it does at least occasionally be funny and it's watchable at the very least. Like I wasn't at any point going, oh, God, can we turn this off? I mean, again, I'm not going to think about it ever again. I don't think I'm ever going to watch it ever again, even though it's, you know, to get, to get on a repeat list for Christmas movies is not that difficult. My mm. God, I watch The Grinch every year, and I think that is both an awful piece of shit and a beloved classic, and I cannot make my mind up <laughs> which one it is. <laughs> every year, I'm like, well, this is the year you're not going to watch The Grinch. We're just going to move past it, and then, but then I'm like, oh, but is it really Christmas if I don't watch The Grinch? So, 
if that doesn't tell you how much of a like died in the wall Jim Carrey diehard fan I am, I don't know what will. Because <laughs> I yeah, I do truly hate and love that film. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Right. Um, uh, there was also Soul. There was. Which I will be talking about later. I won't be. So Ooh. I think I would like 30 seconds on Soul. I'll give you 30. Uh, crack on. I really loved Soul. I really did. It just narrowly, and I mean very, very narrowly missed out on the top 10 because I have to have a jackass pick. If I didn't have that <laughs> tradition, Soul would be here because it's... Ve- I, all you need to know is that this fi- this film fixes every single problem I had with Inside Out, and it's from the same director. So I'm choosing to view Soul as a personal apology from that man directly to us. And for that, I fucking love it. But I had to have a jackass pick, and I saw some really good films this year, which just narrowly pipped it out of the top ten. Soul, the Rocky Six of the Pixar line. <laughs> God, Foul really Entertainment is. 2020. Um, it really is. Like, I would love to have a jackass pick, but there just isn't anything on here that's of that ilk. So even though I inspired the jackass pick, I will not myself be having a jackass pick. I think um, that's what makes it more beautiful, is that it's you've got something that will outlive you, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm proud of that. I've made an impression. Right, that is it from me. Um, do you have yep. anything else to add? I have nothing else. I only saw right. 30 movies this year. I saw, yeah, I think I've slightly miscalculated. I think I saw maybe 21 22 well okay um, i i saw 30 new movies this year when you take into account all the work that i did on the oscars 2020 episode yeah it's probably closer to like 60 or 70 yes yeah, so i've gone back and used my time to watch movies not from 2020 there's a few things i was like i'm sure that was this year and then wasn't so i was a bit disappointed about that but alas let's move on to the worst of the year um now, i you... have three dishonorable mentions and a worst and a worst well i have a bottom five so i feel like i need to start with my fifth worst movie of the year um we're not timing these are we uh no have as much time as you need sweet the new mutants is the most pointless film ever made (laughs) and i just really didn't like it and that's all i can muster I thought the performances were incredibly flat, even from people like Maisie Williams, who are really good normally, just couldn't deliver in this. I thought the effects were really shoddy. I thought the story was really formulaic and crap compared to what the trailers were showing. I thought the villain was incredibly weak. I think the fucking bear is stupid. I just and and just knowing that all of this was supposedly part of a bigger plan and then also that it just never became part of that plan and that they wanted to do reshoots and make it more of a standalone thing and they just didn't bother i don't see why i should bother giving new mutants any more of my time but i will because i just didn't like it and i need to stress to you how pointless and dispensable this film is that (laughs) you can watch it and then just completely forget everything you've seen 10 minutes later and your life will not have changed it is pointless it is the absence of content it is i fucking hate this film and this is only number five you you remember the text i sent you last week right uh yes (laughs) just just more on that later hang on hang on what was the text you sent me last? i sent you an image 
of just this is the problem with my top distance. So oh, I've had my top yeah. Tennis. So yeah, we can talk about that later. Moved from there. I wish I could, Michael. I wish oh, I could. for fuck's sake! <laughs> like I said, anything below my top three is completely pointless. What order it's in, it's all kind of the same. It's all basically on a level. There's How only three. <laughs> Who said that? That's the only Marvel movie that came out this year. I was saying, like, we were watching, like, uh, like uh, Spider-Man Far From Home was on, like, Sky Movies. At some point, I flipped past it yesterday when I was just killing for time. Um, and I was like, remember how, like, this feels, like, old now? Like, this is now a comfortable movie. You've seen it a few times. And Rachel was like, yeah. And I was like, this is the last MCU movie they put out. Like, oh, goddamn. Oh, wow. Yeah, right? I'm like, yeah. Um, cool. Okay. More on New Mutants Late. It's happened again, Michael. No. Oh, God. It's apocalypse you... all over again. You're a sucker for mutants. You just are. Oh, again, go back and listen to it. I put Dark Phoenix on my top ten for whatever year that came out. So just... Yeah, I'm I'm a problematic review at the best times. Uh, right, I'm just going to put Tenet at my number five just to just to make up numbers. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Just because there's definitely a lot worse movies out there, but nothing pissed me off as much as Tenet did. So that's fair. Um, I'm going to put that at number five. Uh, so my number four. Wait, where's my list gone? There it is. Um, my number four. There's going to be a theme running through my um, four, three, and two picks. Uh, I'm going to start with Jingle Jangle. Uh, this is. <laughs> Yep. This is, um, That's a one title. Of, one of three new Christmas movies that uh, Netflix put out this year. Um, have you seen literally anything about Jingle Jangle? Not a fucking thing. Okay, so it's got a good cast. It's got uh, Forrest Whitaker and Keegan-Michael Key as like its headliners. Uh, and I think it, other than the dad from Paddington, it is an all-black cast, which is like great. And it's a musical. Uh, the, the gist is um, Forrest Whitaker in his like, younger, younger days... Um, was like a, the world's greatest toy inventor. He was just coming up with loads and loads of things uh, and he planned to pass it on to his daughter um, at the end of it. But his apprentice, who, you know, during the early musical, it makes it seem like he's kind of ignoring him or at least he's so distracted by, in a Willy Wonka way, he's so distracted by his inventions and bringing happiness that he hasn't got time for his apprentice and his ideas. Um, the apprentice kind of gets a bit mad. A toy soldier is brought to life at some point, and he's like, well, no, he's a toy, um, what, a bullfighter, and he's just a generic Spanish toy, and he wants to be the only one that's alive, and he doesn't want anyone to replicate him, so he convinces the apprentice to steal the Book of Inventions, and he goes away, and that's Keegan Michael Key, he goes away and becomes, like, the world's greatest toy inventor off the back of just creating everything in this book. We then catch up in the future, um, Forrest Whitaker's granddaughter comes to visit him as his shop is about to go out of business it's now just a pawn shop forest whitaker's being forest whitaker about everything he's very sad and whisper shouting um boggle it um but it's <laughs> so that's basically the gist and then it's her trying to get this book back um so they can you know he can be a great toy inventor again and he finds his last she finds his last great invention in the loft which is this weird toy robot called jangle um, or Jingle, one of the two. It might just be called Jingle Jangle, I can't remember. Anyway, it's a little toy robot. It doesn't play that much into the story, considering the movie's named after it. And anyway, there's just some music, and they get the book back eventually, and yada yada blah blah. It's just, none of the music is any good, and none of the comedy lands. It's just such a really, like, empty movie. There's no redeeming quality of whatsoever. Nothing's, like, outright terrible. Like, the CGI is fine 
on the robot and on some of the, the whimsical scenes, but the music, considering she's like, I've, I don't think Netflix has any original musicals to call its own. Right. If this is it, they really need to do go again and try better because I couldn't sing you one note from this entire film. And it's it's not Les Miserables, it's not all the way music, but it's a good chunk of the movie and for none of that to land is bad. I think Keegan-Michael Key gets the most decent song. He has like his villain song at the start. He's be prepared for want of a better phrase. And <laughs> that's okay, but that's just because he's going full ham. I think Michael Keegan Michael Key realised, yes, he's getting that Netflix money, but he ain't getting any critical acclaim, so he's got to ham this shit up. And that's about <laughs> it. Fair enough. That that does sound pretty processed, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. Um, cool. You're number four, Michael. My number four. Uh, it's a film that I watched during the uh, Oscar run. Uh, this one is The Lighthouse. A lot of people are going <laughs> to be annoyed that this is here. Um I'm just surprised it's this low because, good lord, the three films that come after this. Um, so The Lighthouse is a psychological horror. I guess it's a horror movie in a sense. Um, it's directed by Rob, Robert Eggers, who I really want to like. I really want to appreciate. And I just fucking can't when he makes shit like this. Um, so it's a pretty much a two-hander. It stars Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. And they're both playing lighthouse keepers. Um, and it's about them just slowly going mad in isolation with each other. There's a lot of scenes of Robert Pattinson wanking onto a wooden doll of a mermaid. If you, that's what you want to see, there's a lot of it. There are, and I cannot stress this enough, several scripted and live performed farts from uh, Willem Dafoe. That, the fact that that's part of this role tells you what kind of film this is. <laughs> It's it's shot entirely in black and white. It's in a, I think it's one nineteen aspect ratio, so it's a fucking square. It's like you're watching an old zoetrope. It's it's a weird looking film. I kind of have to admire how much they stuck with the themes of insanity, but also it's not fun to watch in the slightest. Maybe that's the point. Maybe I'm missing something, but it is just it is it's a film that feels like you're being stabbed in the gut. It is just scene after scene after scene of either of either these people just doing mad things, saying nonsensical shite, weird dream sequences where Robert Pattinson wants to fuck a fish, or and there's the use of the word, the, well, the, not even the word, the phrase "spill your beans" is used so much. Apparently, so you're not going to watch this, are you, Darren? I cannot put into words how little I want to watch this movie. <laughs> so it, it it kind of it feels like to me that this the, the film is basically it's meant to be psychological torture for the character of Robert Pattinson because he's basically um, stolen somebody's identity, and there is an implied murder that's happened before the events of the film, um, and maybe it's him in hell. Maybe that's the only way that I can fucking can't like put this word into put this word put this film into words there's a weird really really weird fascination with getting to see what's up the top of the lighthouse and only willem dafoe is allowed to see it you never see it in the film he does get up there he just screams and the film ends um there's oh god i can't i don't want to talk about it anymore i just don't want to talk about it it's so art house it's like annoyingly art house 
it's like some you know like the icon gallery in birmingham it's something you mm. would see there and oh. that's fucking wanky and you know the kind of film you're getting with that i don't even think rob rob roger robert uh, robert eggers is a bad director i don't think he is i think he's a very competent filmmaker i just wish he'd make something that's nice competent. to watch yeah uh, couple of, just enjoyable or has anything that isn't Artie's pain about it because it's just it's just joyless it's an absolutely joyless film and i really wish i could comprehend and appreciate what he's trying to do maybe i don't get it i didn't like the witch either so maybe i'm just really not getting this guy for god this was a fucking pain to watch especially at the end where they try and pull a fucking they try and pull a monster movie out their ass at the end and it does not fucking work not in the context of this film or any film for that matter, it's just fucking bizarre. I hated it. I would rather watch Twilight New Moon with director's commentary than sit through <laughs> any amount of the lighthouse. Good. I can't... I, I Well done on trying to expand your horizons and not just being put off by, you know, the, the, the inside cover, as it were, of just like, well, this is what this movie's about. Because the second I saw that... I know that I'm basically a caveman when it comes to movies, but you're not coming here for my refined taste in movies, are you? I'm going to put New Mutants in a top ten in a minute, so <laughs> hold on to your butts with that. But, yeah, I oh, I cannot think of anything else this I'd rather watch. Yeah, it's it's definitely not a Darren Gutteridge film. Good God. No, it, <laughs> oh, God. Right, okay. Next up, it's The Holiday. Uh, two of three new Christmas movies that Netflix put out this year. Um, two, two of three new films that are in your bottom five, Darren. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, where was I? Um, this is like, it, it's like love guaranteed again. It's just a very formulaic holiday romance film. But whereas love guaranteed was just like, bleh, and did, I think, once make me laugh, holiday is just a really like, horribly cynical film basically your premise is that um emma roberts and hansen b wonderful i don't know what the actor's name is um are to, they are two singletons that have been put under pressure by their families to have dates um or you know to start dating and you know settle down and have a family and they are the type of family that always gets together for every holiday that they you know there is christmas new year easter yada 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 so these two bump into each other in a mall trying to return Christmas gifts. And one thing leads to another, they basically go, look, we'll just pretend to be each other's dates for the holidays, a.k.a. each other's holidays. That's the quirk. They're ticking all the boxes for our pitch list. Um, <laughs> modern quirk, handsome actor, beautiful actress, beautiful setting. I think it's set in L.A., but they do like some nice shots of everything. Anyway, it's just so by the numbers and it's really like, kind of horrible you know exactly where it's going of course they're going to fall in love by the end of the film but it's not even like remotely funny it's such a waste of time this none of the three dishonorable mentions i would say are actively bad none of them pissed me off anywhere near as much as tenet did but none of them have the ambition that tenet did at the very least there are some good action scenes in tenet um it's just it's the absence of good that gets this on this list of there is no redeeming qualities whatsoever to the holiday the fucking holiday good yeah. god yeah I, I again this is not a michael owen movie you no. would not suffer through this 
No, I, I fully believe that that is the case. Um, yeah, no. The the very fact that you sat through a lot of these Christmas movies shows you to have a much greater sense of... Uh, well, I'm not even going to say it's a sense. It's a loss of self-worth. In <laughs> I, I mean, I love my fiancé, and she likes to watch Christmas movies, and these were all the new ones that Netflix had. So I was like, you know what? I've got Football Manager. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> Maybe this is what makes me a terrible husband, that I won't watch shit like this, but I will force <laughs> my wife through a number of Oscar movies. So, you well, know. The, yeah, it's all about checks and balances. Like, I... I, I I made Rachel watch some shit. We finally got around to watching Rocky Four this Christmas, so you know <laughs> th- things had to be balanced out. I mean, why they should do? It's Rocky Four, yeah. but yeah. So this was all part of the. If I get to watch Rocky Four every year, I'll sit through ten of these goddamn things. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all of this is worth it for Hearts on Fire. Oh right. Oh, Anthony Joshua came out to it for his last fight. What he really? Came out, he, came, he came out to a Rocky Four song. I'm pretty sure if you're going to choose any, it's going to be Heart on Fire, because I mean, there's no easy way it doesn't make enough sense. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's the God. I love that scene. Oh, it's so <laughs> it's so eighties cheese, but my God, oh, it's premium. But yeah, I think he came out to Heart on Fire when he uh, had his last fight a few weeks ago. Nice. Nice, that's awesome. Right, we're on the podium now, Maggle. Let's hit me with number three. The third worst film of this year was Greed, a film that I was ju- is only up here because of how disappointing it is. I can't tell you that this is a worse film than uh, what was at my number five, uh, The New Mutants. I can't tell you it's a worse film than The Lighthouse. I can't actually tell you that it's a worse film than anything on this list. What it is, is a massive, and I mean massive disappointment considering the talent behind this film. Directed by Michael Winterbottom, starring Steve Coogan, David Mitchell, Asa Butterfield, Sophie Cookson, Isla Fisher, Asim Chowdhury. There are some good people in this film. And it comes down to being a satire of did you know that fashion moguls and big high street brands are abusive and uh that's it it's it's not (laughs) telling us stuff we didn't already know it doesn't have to heighten the excess and sort of like debauchery that that we already know that owners of large multinational companies already engage in often in the public eye it doesn't need to to then try and amp that up by literally having like the entire plot the the main pull through is Steve Coogan's character Richard McCready um is celebrating i think it's his 60th birthday so he is literally building a fake coliseum and shipping a tiger in so he can have like a like a Christians and the Lions situation as his birthday treat and right. that sounds dumb but like it's it doesn't actually sound much worse than what we know people with this amount of money do in the real world therefore it kind of can't be taken seriously and in very much the sense of Chekhov's smoking gun this is Chekhov's smoking lion you don't introduce a lion and a poor lion tamer if you're not going to have someone get mauled by a lion at the end so when it Mm -hmm. happens you're not in the slightest bit fucking surprised and that's that's the problem. None of this film is surprising. None of the contents are actually making a salient point other than, did you know that reality exists and water is wet? It, <laughs> I'm just, I can't express to you how bad 
everybody puts in a performance as well. Tim Key, flat as shit. David Mitchell, flat as shit. Isla Fisher, completely fucking wasted. Asa Butterfield, completely fucking wasted. Steve Coogan, feels like he's kind of like sleepwalking through half of his scenes. And then the other half of his scenes, he's being played by a younger actor who's really fucking good. And I really feel sorry for Jamie Blakely, who plays the young Richard McCready, because he puts in probably the best two or three scenes of the entire film. And they're all kind of like chronicling the setup of this clothes shop empire. The rest of it is is depressing on multiple levels. Firstly, because the story itself is quite depressing because you get to see the people that this guy steps on in order to reach the success and fame that he has. But it's also depressing that none of it feels impactful. None of it feels like it's making a point that you don't already know. None of it is entertaining. I was waiting and waiting and waiting for one good gag, for one salient point to be made, for one bit of purpose for the film. Mm -hmm. And it never comes. And it's not a particularly long film. It only clocks in at about, I think it's, an hour and 40, something like that. But an hour and 40 waiting for one joke is a long time to be waiting for a joke in a comedy film. And it just never fucking does it. This might be one of film four's worst films. And it contains a lot of people I like. And that's why it's on number three. Uh, <laughs> so uh, last up, silver medal position uh, for my dishonorable mentions. It's the Christmas Chronicles 2. Three of three new Christmas movies put out by Netflix this year. Fucking uh, hell. Like, I watch, we watch both of them essentially in the same day, Christopher Chronicles 1 and 2. Christopher Chronicles 1, this is the Kurt Russell is Santa film. It's actually pretty good. Like, it's not doing anything, like, overly original. Basically, um, they they have a family. Um, the, the dad has just died. He was a firefighter. He's just died. Um, and they're re-watching old... The daughter's re-watching old tapes that he used to make. And there's one where they're shooting, like, the, the Christmas scene... And you see mom and dad leave, and then you see Santa's hand come out of the chimney to put a present down. So she decides she's going to try and catch Santa with her brother. Um, in doing so, they kind of crash the sleigh by startling Santa when they jump in off a roof and into the sleigh. It gets up into altitude. He, she scares him, and it crashes in Chicago. And it's basically Kurt Russell as handsome as fuck Santa. That's a That's a weird like divergent but i mean if you're going to cast kurt russell he's going to be the most handsome santa you've ever seen um and he wears like a leather red coat Oof. anyway um and it, it's not anything like it's, they need to reclaim the sleigh and get christmas spirit back and all this business but it's genuinely enjoyable like it's 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 nothing revolutionary but you do enjoy all the characters but there's a point where it's like right they they send the daughter back to the north pole and says look the elves will know what to do and they introduce what this interpretate this film's interpretation of what elves are, which are like little, like gremlin-looking things, like fluffy gremlin gizmo, but pointy up ears instead of apes, the side ears. Um, so they sew them off, and there's lots of them, and they're in the film for maybe about ten minutes. But clearly, someone in marketing saw this as like we need to make them like the minions, and that's what happens when you get the Christmas Chronicles two. They get Goldie Orn in as 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 uh, Mrs. Claus, and they spend most of the movie in the North Pole. But it's just all the elves, all of them, all the time, and they're <laughs> not as funny as they've. It, it it's like the Minions, but less funny. Wow! Like and the Minions can still be funny in the Despicable Me movies. Like I still like them, like when they use sparingly. But this is like the Minions standalone film. 
but at Christmas. And it's just horrendously bad. And it also highlighted something that I really didn't want to admit to myself. Let me just look up his name. Um, the Christmas Chronicles 2. It basically showed, without a shadow of a doubt, that someone can't act. Their name is uh, Julian Dennison, who is from Hunt from the Wilder People. And he's great in that movie. And then we watched him in Deadpool 2, and I was like, no, nah, he wasn't great. He's so bad in this movie. <laughs> Just getting worse and worse. As he, he's, like a, he's like a reverse fine wine. He's getting much worse with age. Um, <laughs> he plays like the evil elf who's been turned into a real boy for magic reasons. Um, and he's so... Michael, I cannot put into words how bad he is. How wooden... He is like how you go from being so funny in Hunt for the Wilder People to this. Like, I don't know if just the magic's gone for him. The spark has died, but like he's still getting rolls and, you know, you got to eat. So he's just taking them. But oh, my God, he's awful. He's so bad. And it kind of made it sad. Like, oh, he was really funny once. And now he's not. And it's it's so bad. It's it's such a fall off. Seeing him back to back made it the comparison a lot easier to make. But, yeah, it's all the worst things about the Minions movie, but just set at Christmas. And and it has no real lesson to teach. It has no real... It has, like, a very basic overcoming your fears type of thing, but, oh, God, it's horrendous. Don't watch it. I wasn't planning on it. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I don't look, look do... The, the first one's fine. Like, it's nothing. it's nothing new. But it, it definitely wasn't the worst movie I've watched in the last 30 days of Christmas movie marathons. But, oh, the drop-off in quality in the second one is ridiculous. There's not going to be a number three. I have to believe, for all the grace of God, there's not going to be a number three. If there is, is uh, we know what's going to be top of your uh, worst year, worst films of the year that year. Probably, although Adam Sandler is still making movies. Spoiler <laughs> alert, I guess. But <laughs> That's yeah. true. Um, yeah, I think I'll just stick to Klaus. I think I'll stick to Klaus. Oh, Klaus is so good. It's such a good film. It's so goddamn good. It might be my top five favourite Christmas movies now. Upon rewatch, it still holds up this year, so I... Oh, oh, it's good. Oh, yeah, it's a brilliant film. I love it. Uh, okay, can we talk about my number two now? Because I need your help with this one, Darren. Oh, go on. My number two worst film of the year, just narrowly missing out on that beautiful top spot, is How to Build a Fucking Girl. <laughs> you told me about this. You <laughs> warned me that this was going to annoy me, and I ignored <laughs> you, and I don't know why I did, because fuck me. Okay, let's get into it. So oh, it's, oh, please, yes. It's based on Caitlin Moran's life, although I don't know what fucking fantasy version of Wolverhampton she was living in, as we'll come to discuss. Like, so, but like you mentioned, Beanie Feldstein, I don't even particularly have a problem with Beanie Feldstein as an actress. She's very good in um, uh, What We Do in the Shadows. Her She's Black good Country in Booksmart as well. Yeah, Booksmart. I haven't seen Booksmart, but I've heard nothing but good things. Oh, please do watch Booksmart. It will redeem her at least a little bit. I think I need to do that because she needs redemption. The, the poor girl was tasked. I think this is like only like a third or fourth movie and the poor girl has to do a yam yam accent now <laughs> for those of you i imagine there's not many people outside of the midlands actually listen to this but 
me and Diana are from an area called the Black Country. It has a very distinct and very different accent to every accent that surrounds it geographically. It's it sounds a little bit like someone's having a jovial stroke, because um, <laughs> we sound so fucking weird, and that is a challenge for an actress. But be, here comes Beanie Feldstein, uh, who seems to be having something of DID. She's it's like she's got multiple personalities going on because she's Irish, Scouse, Manchurian, Scottish, and a Cockney all at once, and yet somehow has not hit a dart in the middle of the fucking country. Oh my god, she's terrible. She's so bad, and it's not even like it. It's like it's her performance is like good but you can't listen to her because her performance is shite as well but okay the one saving grace of this film i'm not sure whether you agree with me here is paddy considine who does a really fucking good job he actually gives our accent a good go and gets it quite good there's a scene where he's kind of like picked up by the police for illegally breeding dogs and he's (laughs) just like they, they come to find him and it's like Oh, are you? Um, oh, what's his? What's the character's name? Are you Pat Morrigan? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, oh, the Pat Morrigan is advertising breeding dogs. And he perfectly goes, nah, take me, bab. <laughs> and I was like, no, he he does a really like, di- like no, 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 it's not nailed on, but it's as close as this movie ever gets to it. Accent. Yeah, it really is. Um, unfortunately, we have to talk about the plot of the film now, which infuriates me to no end. So <laughs> I don't know. For how long? I actually did look this up. I tell a lie. I did look this up. Kaylee Moran lived in Wolverhampton for six months. She did oh. not. She did not live here for long. She went to a nice school. She did not live here for very long at all. I don't think she has the right to make a film about what this film is trying to be about. The message I took from this is that it's very difficult, and there's a very good line. I must admit, there is one very well written line in this movie about somebody being from the wrong postcode and i thought that was wonderful the idea that it's it's trying to say that you can't become everything you want to be and you will obviously be put up against it because you're from the wrong area if that's what the film was about i think i would have really liked it sadly it isn't sadly it comes across as kayla moran basically trying to fix her own past and saying well this is this is what you know it's 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 the movie equivalent of Kayla Moran's in the shower and she's remembering all the things she would have said during the argument but didn't remember to say. Mm-hmm. It, it's just, oh, yeah, I definitely started writing for NME when I was 14. Oh, I definitely gave myself a cool um, name and dyed my hair. And all of a sudden, everybody was uh, wanted to talk to me in the common room and I got off with a rock star. And it feels like someone's cracked open Caitlin Moran's diary where she lied to herself throughout her teenage years and made that into a fucking film. And he's fucking infuriating <laughs> because it kind of undercuts its own point. The point of having yeah. somebody from a deprived area struggle to be artistic and noticed without being... You know, there's a scene in the movie where she's crowned arsehole of the year. Without being somebody so outlandishly evil, you're nothing. That's a really, really good film. Make that film. Don't make this shite. Darren, can you help me out here? Can you help me with this? Because otherwise I feel like I'm just going to swear repeatedly (laughs) into the microphone. I mean, I don't know how I can help you because I agree with everything you said. It's, it's, 
yeah, it's very it's very self-aggrandizing, and it, it doesn't. We're still waiting for something to really capture what life is really like in the West Midlands, because I mean the closest we get is bloody Peaky Blinders, which is. <laughs> And even yeah. then, you know, it's still not exactly how it should be. No, it's close enough, but, you know, we've paid a horrible price for that because you cannot move in Birmingham for Peaky Blinders shite. That's um, everywhere. At the moment. God, we went to watch a movie. This would have been, I think, the start of the year. We went to watch a movie at Dudley Cinema, and the traffic was horrendous, and we could not figure it out. They were having a Peaky Blinders night at the Black Country Living Museum, and everyone was walking around in bloody the bloody flat caps and oh jesus it just brings out the worst of people anyway um yeah i i i stand by everything you said i didn't put it on my worst list because i basically because of paddy constantine but i i i wholeheartedly agree with everything you said it's such a a weird i I, i'll be honest it's probably not on this list because i lost complete interest for like the last half an hour I don't think I was paying attention. I just zoned out completely. Had I really stuck to it, it probably on merit would be here as well. But it was so it was so boring that I just stopped watching. I yeah, if, if this is going to be, I don't think it really got an international release, so I don't think this is what people are going to think of a, a a black country accent or even a West Midlands accent is. So good. Joe, you know really annoys me. Really, really quick sidebar. Go on. I'm just going to say in a sentence, the Weasleys should have been from the black country. Yeah, no, I agree. Because you've got Julie Walters, who's from Edgebaston, who was uh, Molly Weasley. Um, You've got Mark Williams, who's from Bromsgrove, who was Arthur Weasley. Uh, Fred and George, so James and Oliver Phelps, they're from Sutton Coalfield. So I don't know why the Weasleys weren't black country. And then everyone would know what their accent is. And then we wouldn't have to have pieces of shit like this that are just guessing at it. Because you could just... I'm guessing Bernie Feldstein being a, you know, a young person has watched Harry Potter and could at least watch those to learn the accent better. But alas, no. Um, so thanks, J.K. Rowling. That's the worst thing you've done. The, <laughs> one of my favourite things about this film is that um, as part of her research for the part, Bernie Feldstein um, was given a part-time job in a shop in Dudley and used it to practice her accent, which I think is a terrible idea because everyone from Dudley's a mutant anyway, so they wouldn't know if anyone's doing the correct accent or even actually talking uh, to them. So, you know. I'm going to be marrying someone from Dudley. So I am married to someone from Dudley. You are married to someone from Dudley. <laughs> yeah, like this, this is the thing. There's the black country accent and then there's the Dudley accent, <laughs> which is somehow worse. There was that... <laughs> I tell you what annoys me. is There was that one really good... Um, uh, TV special about Lenny Henry's life, and they cast mm. somebody that we went to school with as Lenny Henry, and they got they the accent they? right, and then everyone swiftly forgot about it. Yeah, that didn't really hang around, and that's my boss you're talking about there, Sir Lenny. Um, yeah. So you think it was it would have been like mandatory watching for anybody who works at my university? But there we go. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's. If I had paid attention for the last half an hour to 45 minutes, I would probably be putting it on the same list, Michael. So I echo everything you say. But now I'm really trying to figure out what was worse. Um, Unless you two have put Hubie fucking Halloween. I've been waiting for this. Oh, sweet Jesus. Okay, so just avoid holiday Netflix movies is probably the best advice I can give you after this list. But 
So Hubie Halloween is Adam Sandler not giving a toss, which is most Adam Sandler films post the year. Whenever Click came out, that was probably the last time. I know Uncut Gems is meant to be great, but for me, Click was the last like good comedy Adam Sandler did, and it's all been downhill since there. He's so past the point. Either no one has told him that his comedy isn't landing anymore, and he, he genuinely believes what he's putting out is good, or he has stopped caring. Netflix was stupid enough to give him a 10-contract movie, and he's riding that fucker into the ground. Because this is, like, it's not even the worst Adam Sandler film. Like, Jack and Jill, I imagine, is much worse. I haven't bothered, but I imagine there's a lot more egregious comedies out there from this. But, like in the way that Holiday and Love Guaranteed were by-the-numbers Netflix movies, this is such a by-the-numbers Adam Sandler film. My God, he's he has a silly accent... He lives with his mom. He's misunderstood by society, except for the attractive girl. Who is, um, what's a face from Modern Family, who was Virginia Venet in Happy Gilmore. So he's even recycling his love interests at this point. Um, and he's in this town that he tries to be the safety marshal for Halloween because he doesn't want anyone getting hurt at Halloween. And he's got a flask that is like, like you know, a, a thermos flask that's also like gadgety. So it's got a grappling hook in there and a light and it can shoot things and it's never explained. And oh, it's just so, so, it's just, it doesn't make a single funny joke the entire time. And like, he, again, he gets a good cast together. Like he, I know it's all his mates, but you know, they're still funny people. They are capable of being funny. They just actively choose not to be and just pump out shite like this one. <laughs> it's, 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 oh, it's so insultingly bad. It's so like, and surely there can't be a soul on earth who genuinely looks forward to and enjoys these Adam Sandler movies anymore. Because if they are, I genuinely feel sorry for them. Because Adam Sandler is just pumping them out because Netflix are paying him to and he doesn't have to put the effort in. They've already given him the 10 movie contract up front. He's like, what well, the fuck should I bother doing anything good? Like, I'll do indie films to make myself, you know, feel better, like Uncut Gems. But Netflix gave him all the money up front, so he's like, fuck it, I'll just do a silly Halloween movie. Like, uh, it's. I, I wish I'd seen something this year that was, like, actively, like, terrible or insulting or something like that. But in lieu of that, it has to be the absence of good. And there is nothing, <laughs> nothing good about Hubie fucking Halloween. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, it's interesting to know, actually, that uh, I can't remember what award ceremony it was, but um, uh, Adam Sandler picked up uh, an Oscar, not an Oscar, uh, an award for his role in Uncut Gems. And I'm pretty sure he said, if I don't get nominated for the Oscars, I'm going to make the worst film you've ever seen. So surely this oh. is it. Surely this is actually it. Maybe. Like, this is the thing. Uh, that's That probably shows it's option two, that Adam Sandler full, what, knows full well that no one likes these movies, but he doesn't give a shit. Because if he can do something like Uncut Gems, which admittedly I haven't seen, but I've heard nothing but good things about then he still has talent. I still do think somewhere in there is the ability to make a good Adam Sandler comedy. He just has to strip away his comfort blankets, stop playing the same character he's been playing since the early 90s of mumbly, silly-voiced man who lives with his mom, because that could contain The Waterboy, Happy Gilmore, Billy Madison, um, 
others. Um, I've, li- I've literally found the quote. He appeared on the Howard Stern show in January. He says, if I don't get the nomination, I'm going to fucking come back and I'm going to do one again that is so bad on purpose just to get you. Well, there it is, Adam. Well done. You achieved your goal <laughs> of putting out the worst film of 2020. I don't know why I bothered, but there we go. It's it's. We, we were past the point of no return about 10 years ago we hadn't seen the comedy movies. I don't know why I gave this one a try, but I did, and I regret it a lot. <laughs> oh, the revenge oh. flick, everyone's favourite. Um, yeah. I think I have to continue what you just said was, um, we have to judge the worst film as something as the absence of good. Um, and that's why I couldn't put um, Heads Build a Girl that was the worst movie, because I did actually enjoy Paddy Gunstein. There was a film that came out in when did it come out it was not march this year surely not may this year there we go it's released in premium video on demand so it was in replace of being out in the cinemas Mm -hmm. it's called capone and it was directed and you'll know why it's here when i tell you who fucking directed it by josh trank oh christ okay here we fucking go darren right there is literally not a single saving grace of this entire film bear in mind this is josh trank's third film his first being chronicle his second being fan four stick a film i really enjoyed and a film i really enjoyed at the cinemas despite the fact it's one of the worst films i've ever seen you take away the fact that i couldn't turn to you and narrate my disappointment with this film (laughs) is probably why it's here at number one because there is nothing worth saving in this film. Josh Trank decides to make a film about Al Capone. Interesting. Let's see what you have to offer. Well, he says, I've decided to set this 11, like after his 11 year sentence at Atlanta Atlanta Penitentiary. And it literally is an hour and 40 of Al Capone with dementia, with syphilis, shitting himself over and over again. That is not an exaggeration. There are multiple scenes of him literally shitting the bed in what can only be described as an indictment on Josh Trank's career. It's just (laughs) it's just fucking bollocks. They get some really good actors for this. Um, Tom Hardy is playing Al Capone under what I presume to be a mountain of makeup because he looks like shit. You've got Linda Cardinelli who's playing uh, his wife, May, who I think was only in four scenes. I'm pretty sure she was only in four scenes. She's just completely wasted. And then you've got Matt Dillon and Jack Loudon as like these FBI agents who are kind of surveilling Capone who get similarly fuck all to do. The longest scene in the movie is one giant hallucination where Capone kind of remembers the Chicago of the 20s. Um, And that is just basically this big vertical slice of we didn't have any content so we decided to put this in the hallucination serves no payoff to the setup uh, that the setup being that capone thinks that there are people in the swamp trying to get his money um and the aftermath of that being he goes mad with syphilis and hallucinates that he has shot up his entire family and then dies and that's the plot darren i have just described to you every single beat of the plot that is a film that is worth 104 minutes of your time no it fucking isn't it's a film about 
the worst bit of Al Capone's life, the bit where nothing happened, he went slowly mad, he pooped himself a lot, and then he died due to syphilis. Why the fuck do you pick this part of Al Capone's fucking life to make a film out of? Why this bit? Why not just it? Maybe because Public Enemies already exists as a 20s gangster movie and was really good. I mean, it didn't concern Al Capone. And I'm pretty sure there are other films that concern Al Capone. There is. I actually watched one not too long ago, The Untouchables. Well, there we go. Yeah, with Costner and uh, Sean Connery being an Irish policeman for some reason. Oh, that sounds the fucking most, weird. They cast the most Scottish man alive as an Irish person, but there we go. That's fucking uh, Yeah, strange. so maybe that's what it is. Like, because The Untouchables is pretty good that they felt like, well, that, that, because that's the, the kind of, um, it, Kevin Costner's the head of, like, the, um, the drug intervention police, basically. They're trying to desperately take Al Capone down in, during uh, Prohibition. Uh, and it's him, Andy Garcia, and uh, Sean Connery trying to do it. Um, and it ends with the trial that saw Al Capone get done on tax evasion. They got him sent to prison. Yeah. So maybe because that is such like an all-encompassing, like that's that bit done. We don't need another Capone movie to do that bit. Because um, I mean, they had De Niro as Capone, and Tom Hardy's great, but he's not De Niro, is he? So no. maybe that. But yeah, there's. Put him in Alcatraz at the very least. Yeah, the prison days of Al Capone would be interesting. Not the bit at the end where he was basically a pensioner at 40, going mental. And the thing is, Darren, we've seen dementia addressed in films. We've seen it addressed in Logan. We've seen it addressed in like a lot of other Oscar films before that. Yeah. And we've seen it addressed in TV shows like... Um, but I believe it's a big part of uh, Legion and a couple of other things. Mm-hmm. We've seen it addressed in creative sensitive heartfelt ways we have not seen it addressed as big stupid man goes mental poops himself and dies i really feel for everybody who is living with dementia knows somebody who's living with the dementia has had dementia in the family that watch this film and want to get an interesting look into you know I'm not saying that Capone was a good person. It is very interesting to have somebody as bloodthirsty as Capone go through something like this. But this isn't the film to do it. It just isn't. The entire plot line rests on allegedly Capone hid away some money. It might be that the people in the swamp are trying to get his money. It might be that his friends are trying to get his money. It might be that the FBI are trying to get his money. What it is about is just people shouting, Capone looking like he doesn't know where he is, like a deer in headlights, and a lot of scenes of shit. And that's it. It is the complete absence of good filmmaking. It's the complete absence of storytelling. The fact that it was written and directed by Josh Trank should tell you everything you need to know about this movie. And the sooner that Josh Trank falls off the face of the fucking earth and doesn't make any more films, I will be a happier man. God, he really screwed the pooch, didn't he, with Fantastic? Like, we were all excited for here after Chronicle, and then, oh boy, turns out he had one good idea. <laughs> he didn't even write that. He didn't no. even write that. I mean, it's fine. George Lucas only had one good idea, but my God, that's given us a lot more than Chronicle did, so there's that. It's a long-lasting um, idea. Josh Trank <laughs> just needs to stop making movies. Just stop being part of Hollywood, Josh. You're not cut out. You are a... You're not even a subpar director. You're a terrible fucking director. You've completely shit your own fucking okay hang on oh for fuck's sake okay josh trank's making a tv series about the cia um 
that's what he's doing next. Wish he wouldn't, but he is. You don't have to watch it, Michael. It's okay. Josh Trank TV show doesn't exist. It can't hurt you. Um... (laughs) Josh Trank is the anti-Edgar Wright. Oh, he is, isn't he? I'm going to have to stop avoiding him now. Or stop avoiding him. I'm going to have to start actively going, oh, there's a Josh Trank film coming out. Better drug myself up so I don't watch it. Uh, There's literally zero chance I get to watch it. Lovely. That is the shit flushed down the toilet. I'm sure we're all happy to do that after 2020. Uh, And now it's on to the top ten. A little bit of a disclaimer. Yep. But basically ten up, I could say, in joint fourth place. Because... (laughs) Through ten through four, but this way, I'm not doing a separate top ten movies articles this year. I feel so dispassionately about the vast majority of my top ten that I'm just going to do a top five and roll it in with the top five of everything else. So look forward to that. It is still a very good article because TV and video games fucking stepped up to the plate this year to fill the void by films. Well done. Oh yeah. But I uh, yeah, everything from ten to four is basically interchangeable on any given day. That being said, I've tried to put them in an order. Here we go. And number 10, um, Hubie Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> By default, Hubie Halloween. Um, right. At number 10, the uh, uh, admittedly, I watched Downhill like last night, I think. So uh, this wasn't the last movie I watched this year, but it came in very, very close. This is Soul at number 10 nice. from Pixar. This is their Disney Plus exclusive uh, release. Um, it, it is in the vein of Inside Out. Basically, it's existential Pixar which I am not a fan of, typically speaking, compared to their more traditional fare. I'm not saying they shouldn't take choices. I'm just saying, on evidence, they're better at doing slightly more straightforward movies than they are at doing existential crisis movies. So this is a story of um, a man. I can't remember his name. <laughs> oh, God. I can't oh, no. Either. Oh, oh, no. Jesus, I Hang on. Bear <laughs> with. I, I hate when I do this, people. I understand your annoyance because listening back to myself do this annoys me um but there we go it's jamie fox he's playing joe gardner um he's a passionate jazz um uh, musician but unfortunately he can't really get a you know a good gig going so he has to basically temp as a music teacher um he finally lands his dream job um supporting a famous jazz musician and then dies and this is basically his soul trying to get back to earth he jumps off the lift that's going to heaven and goes to the great before um, where he meets all the new souls before they get to go to earth. He gets teamed up with number 22, which is a soul played by Tina Fey, who's very reluctant to go to earth because of all the bad things that happen there and wants to stay in the great beyond forever. Um, through happenstance, they end up back on earth uh, with 22 inhabiting Joe Gardner's body and uh, Joe Gardner inhabiting the body of a cat. And they have some hijinks. It's fine. It is an improvement on Inside Out. I will give it that. I, I really don't like Inside Out. I, I, it's so bit own arse. And the, the thing is with Inside Out, it starts with a fairly like understandable concept and then gets up its own arse. This starts up its own arse with the great before and then kind of normalises out into a bit more of a straightforward Pixar movie. So I think that's the better way around to do it. Because... A bit like Christopher Nolan movies, they get so like many creative ideas and then feel the need to explain them. Basically, they go through a whole process of how these like gods, I suppose they are. They're like these line drawing people, very well animated. I'll give that this 
go, I'll give this movie that. This year, Pixar's flexed, if nothing else, on how good they are as animators. Um, but they're basically like these overseers, for want of a better word, like Technoshare from Assassin's Creed. Um, <laughs> they are these overseers of, like, souls, and um, some of them look after the end of it, but some of them look after the before bit, where they're assigning personalities and stuff like that. And they're like, okay, you five go over to that tent, you're all going to be impulsive. And you go over there, you're going to be um, indecisive and so on. Um, one of them is played by Richard Iowadi, which should probably set the tone for what these people are like. They're just kind of busy men. Um, yeah, Disney's really bought into Richard Iowadi now. Right? I'm very He's happy about in... this. Yeah. I mean, as long as he doesn't mean he... As long as he can still turn up on the big fat quiz of the year, everything's fine. Um <laughs> Oh, did, I, you, did, I, I, did you watch it this year? I did. I won. Wow! Two years in a row, we we scored more points than anybody else. So nice. Goddamn! It was. A, I, I feel bad for him this year because I mean, there's only been one news. <laughs> oh, but there has been there's the, a news. There's the bit where they were talking about the films that came out this year in as, as part of that quiz, and it's just like <laughs> yeah. nobody really remembered anything. No. Nope. Like okay, I don't blame fine. them. Um, so it, it gets a lot of that stuff out of the way, which I don't like when Pixar does. And when it gets to be just Joe, Joe and the cat, it's better. There's some nice messages in this about, you know, having a purpose in life and that changing and just the gift of life in general, which I think puts it above um, Inside Edge. There is no way in hell this makes the top ten in a stronger year. But the animation is gorgeous, unbelievable. Probably the best they've done humans, I'd say like yeah realistic um uh so I, i'll i'll give him that and it, it has a very nice message at the end it's it's a nice film i just i it it falls down on the comedy it didn't really make me laugh all that much which you know it's pixar there was some again rich i wadi gets a few laughs but it's that's probably its biggest downfall if he had done that that would really have pushed it above definitely above inside out but would have maybe bumped it up a few places. But otherwise, number 10. So my number 10, and therefore the uh, inaugural uh, jackass pick of the 2020s for films, is Bill and Ted Face the Music. Um, You may be wondering, Mike, why would you pick something like this? And also, why is it not higher? Um, It's mainly because the, the next nine films are all just very, very impressive. But I could not, for the life of me, not have this here. And I tell you for why, because I don't think it's a very good film. And also it's exactly what I wanted. Right. <laughs> it is simultaneously a mostly terribly acted, terribly written and a little bit trite film that is basically trying to recapture the magic of Bill and Ted. What it does is recapture the magic of Bill and Ted, because the Bill and Ted yeah. films, neither of them are particularly brilliant, but they are incredibly endearing. And they manage to replicate that exact feeling and deliver a three call that actually feels like it belongs as part of this story. It doesn't feel out of place. It feels earnest. It feels like it's coming from people who care about the previous films. And moreover, I forgot how good Alex Winter is. And he's so good. And right. He, um, why is he not active? I understand that he wants to be a director and, you know, produce things and be a bit more a part of the process. Come back, Alex Winter. We really undervalued you. Um, but I think the thing that tipped it over the scales for me were the daughters and how good of a reimagining of the Bill and Ted dynamic they were. 
and I really wasn't expecting to love that as much as I did. But is it Brigitte Lundy Payne who's doing young? Is it she? She's the adorer, isn't she? Ted's daughter is so fucking good in this film. <laughs> she's doing the best impression of a nineties Keanu Reeves I think we've ever seen. And that's when I knew that the film is made by people who really wanted to make a Bill and Ted film. So it's like yeah. you don't get people to do this who don't love Bill and Ted. This isn't just someone getting an early gig. It's no. a passion project. And even though Keanu is not as strong as he should be, I still loved every minute of this stupid film. I realised when you have a mentioned this is actually my number nine, so I'm just going to jump in there. Cool. Uh, you're right. It's not like because like Ghostbusters, for example, it, it has such a bigger cult status status even than. Um, than Bill and Ted does. It made more money, merchandising, and so on. So you could understand there's cynical reasons to, well, make a remake of it and then do more sequels. I am looking forward to Ghostbusters Afterlife, but, I mean, it, it felt inevitable that after the remake didn't really land that they would go, okay, we'll just do a, we'll do a, a sequel slash reimagining or whatever it is. Mm. There's not that call for Bill and Ted. In the same way, there's not really that call for Wayne's World because... They're cult hits. They are the merchandise and everything. They're just fondly remembered. So you're only going to make it. You're only going to make it if it's a passion project. I imagine this was part of the deal to get Keanu to come back to do Matrix Four, because you can't do Matrix without him. So I reckon this was like, okay, we'll finally let you do Bill and Ted Three. Okay, there you go. Come do the Matrix. Um, but yeah, I think everyone. It's it. It was hard to watch with Rachel, who has not seen the first two. She had. No idea what was going on. <laughs> she was on The Sims for the most part, but every time she would look up, she was like, "Who? What? Why?" I'm like, "Just, just trust me. This is all making sense to me. It's fine." <laughs> who, um, who is Station, and why should I care? Yeah, when when um when uh oh, what's his name? Kid Cudi says um yeah, when Kid Cudi just goes Station, and she's like, "What?" I was like, <laughs> "I do not have the time to explain Station. <laughs> I don't have. The I don't fully understand Station." <laughs> Yeah, don't. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Um, yeah, you're right. They, it's, it's a nice movie. It's not fantastic. I mean, it was never going to be. Bill and Ted aren't fantastic movies. They're fine. They're they're funny cult hits. They're little quirky things, but they were never the funniest thing. I was always more of a Wayne's World guy than I was a Bill and Ted guy. But I'm still happy it's here. It was nice to see everyone again. You're right. Um, Bridget Lundy Payne, and as I like to call her. Budget Margot Robbie, uh, Samara Weaving, <laughs> did really good, funny impressions of, of Bill and Ted. So, yeah, a perfectly nice, uh, again, normal year. No hope in hell of this cracking a top ten list anywhere. But, uh, yeah, uh, it's my number nine, so you can now move immediately on to your number nine. My Fair enough. My number nine was The King of Staten Island and a film that dropped out of the top 10 only to come back in the more i thought about it and moreover because i saw bill burr in the mandalorian and got reminded how good he was in this film um so it's directed by judd apatow who obviously that's a lot of indie film nuts their ears have just pricked up yes judd apatow had a new film this year stars pete davidson marissa tomei bill burr and steve buscemi um it's actually a really touching story about uh kind of somebody feeling like they're stuck in their own life um pete davidson plays scott who's a 24 year old high school dropout an aspiring tattoo artist who hasn't actually like gone out 
found a job, found new friends, progressed as a human being because his dad died in 9-11, which is actually genuinely um, Pete Davidson's story of his life. His father was a firefighter who died in 9-11. So they're pulling a lot from Pete Davidson's actual life there, especially for getting Steve Buscemi on board as well. He was a volunteer firefighter during 9-11. So there's a, there's a lot of reality mixing with fiction here. It very much feels like the comedy drama version of Pete Davidson's life pre-SNL. And for that, it feels incredibly earnest. There's a really good um, scene between Bill Burr and Marissa Tomei where Bill Burr's playing like this, um, like this single father firefighter who's like pretty angry and doesn't really know how to be happy anymore. And it really fits Bill Burr as an actor as he is doing actual acting now. I mean, he's in The Mandalorian and he's got one of the better episodes of both series. Um, Marissa Tomei is just fantastic. She's as good as she is in any film. I mean, I'm more reminded of her roles in the Spider-Man franchise, obviously, because that is the more recent thing to draw from. But she's got kind of like... There's a conflict in her. It's kind of... It's a mix between kind of like a spark of hope that, that she's keeping burning but also there is tremendous pain that she's not talking about with her son until very late into the movie so there's definitely layers when it comes to the character drama there is a lot of laughs as well it is very funny um it does kind of start to drop the comedy the later it gets into the film obviously to deal with um other themes like especially there's there's a great sequence in the film where um Scott gets kicked out of his house. Basically, he gets he gets in trouble for tattooing Bill Burr's child, which is fucking funny, and it leads to a brilliant scene at the uh, the doorstep of him and his mom's house. That then leads to a relationship between Bill Burr and Mister Tomei. So um, Scott's kind of feeling left out of this entire thing. He's doesn't have a job. He doesn't have anything to do. His mom wants him out of the house so she can start this new relationship. He ends up having to walk Bill Burr's kids to school. Which you'd think would be stupid and a vehicle for a lot of slap, slapstick comedy. It's actually a vehicle for like showing Scott as a character that his childishness can actually be reintroduced into his life as kind of like a father figure or like a cool uncle. And it's that that kicks him off into he, he goes and moves out of the house. But the only place he feels like he could go is the firehouse where his dad served where he gets kind of like taken in as like the odd job boy. And this leads up to him finally finding purpose uh, and going to take a civil service exam at the very end of the film. And you feel like you've gone on this very personal, almost like touching a nerve journey that still has that kind of like cynical outlook on the inevitability of life at the same time. It, it's such a weird film. And it's very hard to recommend to anybody who doesn't already enjoy the films of Judd Apatow. Like, if you didn't like Juno, there's no way you're going to like this. No chance whatsoever. But it's so heartfelt. It has some brilliant performances and a story that feels all the all at the same time really easy to connect with and kind of weird and muddling for the sense of producing that comedy. I'm not sure whether you would like it, Darren, but I really enjoyed it. Oofed. Uh, okay, number eight um, is the Nola Holmes. This is again. Um, this feels like if this were a stronger year, this wouldn't be here again. 
Nope. Uh, <laughs> so this is um, Eleven. Um, why have I forgotten her actual name? Um, Millie Bobby Brown. Is, Billy Millie Bobby Brown uh, is playing um, Sherlock Holmes' younger sister, um, Anola. Uh, she is. Um, she's basically estranged from the rest of the Sherlock family. She basically spends all of her time at home with her mom, who is played by uh, Helena Bonham Carter. Um, Henry Cavill is playing Sherlock Holmes in this, and when her mom um, goes missing, um, basically Sherlock and uh, Mycroft turn up to take care of their younger sister. She has some of the Sherlock kind of figuring things out, like, out loud, that we've had in every Sherlock adaptation since the Bendit Cumberbatch one. She's kind of got that, but not to the same extent that Sherlock does. And she's a bit more personable than than Sherlock is. It's basically just a midi Bobby Brown, like, no, you you can take me as a serious actress now. This is her first starring role, I would say. Because, I mean, in Stranger Things, she's most memorable, but she's part of an ensemble. Uh, and she's playing second fiddle to Godzilla in Godzilla King of the Monsters. So there's that. Um this is her first kind of chance to stand out and anchor something by herself. This was meant to be a theatrical release, but then obviously a film shutting down meant that uh, Netflix bought the rights for it. Uh, and yeah, it's 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 a nice time. You're right, it wouldn't trouble, trouble the top ten. It's not that good. But it, it's still a nice... Anything that takes a slight turn on just Sherlock Holmes is fine by me. Like, there's no need to repeat the same thing. And, I mean, the Sherlock we get is pretty by the numbers. Henry Cavill is just charming in general. Um, I'm just happy he's finally in something I genuinely want to watch because I don't need to see him as Superman anymore. And I tried to watch The Witcher and kind of gave up. So I'm glad to see him in something that definitely will go on. The ending leaves it quite clear that this is going to be uh, part of an ongoing series. So we're going to get a number two. And I think it went down pretty well. It got good reviews. Obviously, didn't do a box office, so they don't have that metric to judge it by. But, yeah, it's just, in general, it was a nice enough film. I, I enjoyed it. Nowhere near a top ten in a normal year, but worth your time nonetheless. Yeah, that doesn't really strike me as anything that deserves to be immediately seen. Although it is nice to see that Henry Cavill's getting steady work, because I really do like Henry Cavill. He is good. And like I said, Millie Bob Brown is, is quite likeable in this. She does. She, her, her thing is she breaks the fourth wall. Um, like you don't really see that in Sherlock adaptations. I know they do like the like the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes. They do his inner monologue when he's figuring things out or when he's about to fight somebody. She just breaks the fourth wall to do that. Um, so it's got that going for it. And yeah, she she's it shows that Millie Bobby Brown can anchor things by herself, and that's always good to have more British people who can genuinely go there and anchor films. So kudos for her. Nice one, lovely. Uh, so my number eight now, and we're straight back into the January film lists. Uh, uh, my number eight is Bombshell. It was written and directed. Sorry, it was written by uh, Charles Randolph, directed by Jay Roach. Uh, it starred Charlie Theron, Nicole Kidman and Margot Robbie, amongst a plethora of uh, wonderful cameos from John Lithgow, Kate McKinnon, Malcolm McDowell, Anderson Janney. There's some great actors in this. I think the reason that this stayed in the top ten as long as it did, and I mean from the moment I saw it at the start of January up until now, is because it feels important to be here in much the same way that Vice was in the year previous. And it also feels like it was challenging me and my outlook 
on the political climate, which I always appreciate. I always appreciate something that's going to make me think twice about things. If you don't know what the story is about, um, it is about a lawsuit that happened within the Fox News network, um, which but for, for all intents and purposes, a lot of the Fox News anchors and people that worked at Fox in the newsrooms, in the online reporting and all this, were sexually um, assaulted by a man known as Roger Isles. Roger Isles was basically the head of Fox News as a TV uh, broadcasting station. And basically, you don't need to know the explicit details, but let's just say he basically groomed people to be anchors. Uh, anchors that are like well-known Republican pundits such as Megyn Kelly, Gretchen Carlson, uh, a good number of other people. I mean, you see people um, pop up as like Bill O'Reilly, uh, Rudy Giuliani pops up as a cameo in this. There's a lot of people associated with modern day Republican politics and the Trump campaign. What it does and what I really enjoyed about this is that it forces you to sympathize and humanize with people who have what can only be described as deplorable opinions. The opinions of those on the Fox News Network are not necessarily those reflected in more politer societies. And yet you realize that when we talk about protecting people and when we talk about getting equality for all women and fair representation, we mean all women. We don't just mean the ones we agree with. It doesn't matter that we don't agree with the politics of Megyn Kelly or Gretchen Carlson. They don't deserve to be sexually harassed in the workplace. They don't deserve to have mental torture at the hands of Rupert Murdoch and his fucking puppet friends. It's it's kind of sickening. You go in feeling sick that these are the people you're spending time with in the movie. And then it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse as the situation evolves and you realize the sheer number of people that were at the receiving end of this horrific abuse that you are rooting for somebody who believes that assault weapons should be freely available, literally on demand, because, hey, she went through a very human tragedy and no one deserves to go through that. I think it's it's much like Vice before it, it ends on that sour note of, yes, this story has a victory. Yes, this story has a resolution. But it's not the resolution that the world deserves. Just, obviously, you know what happened in real life, that that um, was settled. The lawsuit against Roger Isles and Fox News Network was settled. Uh, Gretchen Carlson, who was like the head of that, uh campaign the face of that campaign did indeed settle for tw for 20 million which is fantastic and all the other hundreds of victims eventually settled for a total of 50 million paid out to individual people and then the sting is that um roger Isles, after stepping down and being part of this public defacement from fox news got 65 million in severance so he made more than all of his victims combined <laughs> And it's just uh, it's just that sting of, oh, yeah, I forgot we were dealing with Rupert Murdoch. Of course, this is what happens. Of course, the abuser gets the best deal. Of course, it continues. Of course, it doesn't matter where you lie on the spectrum. You're going to get screwed over by the man in power. And it's just I, I, I feel like more people should watch this movie. I feel like it is important to see. It is important to have yourself challenged. You might not like Fox News, but there's no human on earth that deserves to go through what those women did. Lovely. Um, okay. Uh, moving on to number seven. I had to check with you prior to this podcast if this was allowed because it's kind of 
I mean, it's been around for years at this point, but this was the first theatrical release of it. Not in theatres, so that's the wrong terminology to use, but this is Hamilton. Ah, uh, it's at number seven. Yeah, it's... I, I, Because this thing, I sat on it for a while and was like, well, if it qualifies, because I wasn't sure if it was, because, again, it is a recording of a, a performance of this from a, quite a few years ago now, but obviously was released this year. Um, and I was like, well, did it make an impact? That's ultimately the question I had to make to put stuff on this top ten. Of like, look, we're not necessarily looking for tangible good here. It's just, did it, do you remember it? Did it make some impact on your life? And undeniably it did. Like, I remember when I was first watching, if you can go back and listen to a review, I wasn't overly fussed with it. And I wouldn't say I'm, I, I, I am at this point, but I have watched it a few times. And I cannot deny that You'll Be Back has not been sang in this house at least once a week in form <laughs> ever since we've seen it. Like, that is easily mine and Rachel's song of the year, and it's not even close. <laughs> like, even when it's said on TV, like, someone will go, well, You'll Be Back, both of us in tandem, like before <laughs> we fight the fight win and win the war. the war. And we do the full thing. Um... So for that song alone, it deserves its place. But I mean, it's caught on in this house. Like, um, Noah's in the room when it happens. How do you write? How do you write like you're running out of time, etc. It's stuck with me. I can't deny that. And I am more interested to see what Lin Manuel Miranda is going to be, which is good because he is the most employed man in the world. Um, so we're going to be seeing a lot more of Lin Manuel Miranda. It helped that he also popped up on. He's on his dark materials as well this year which had a much better second season than it did the first one so um we might talk about that in the next episode in fact um but yeah he turns up in that as well as enjoyable in that too so i i sat there going well it definitely isn't my favorite film which is why it's only at number seven but i can't deny that it was memorable and it made an impact and in this year that is more than enough to get you on to number seven it certainly is more on that later cool uh my number seven um be interesting to see where this place is for you, Darren. My number seven is Jojo Rabbit. Ooh, that's low. It is low, which tells you about the quality of the six films above it. Yeah. Because Jojo Rabbit's a fucking great film. Um, I mean, it, it's a film that kind of solidified that we will follow Taika Waititi anywhere now. Because how do you make the Nazi comedy? You know, that's that's a fucking yeah. big ask. And yet somehow delivered a really heartfelt really laugh out loud and also really shocking movie one that i felt like handled it with the correct level of ridicule but also seriousness that this topic and this period in history kind of deserves we've seen films attempt stuff like this before i mean glorious bastards is the one that immediately comes to mind because i fucking love that film um but jojo rabbit takes a much different approach and obviously we go to the german side of things and we see how their lives are affected and we see how their children are being brainwashed and it doesn't stop being funny even when the tragedy strikes although i must admit my absolute favorite moment of the film is the most horrible moment of the film because it cuts like a fucking knife it's just um, you'll know it if can we talk about it can we say it i mean uh... You know what? If you don't want to hear some spoilers for Jojo Rabbit, skip ahead. I'll give you a minute. Skip ahead a minute. We should be clear by that point. But yes, spoiler alert! The bit where he bumps his head 
he's following a butterfly through the square and he bumps his head on his mother's shoes as she's been hanged for her political dealings was just it was so well done and it was just so impactful considering that the rest of the film up to this point has been very silly has been very you know like it's been basically the live action equivalents of that episode of South Park where they take the piss out of the um, Scientologists and they keep having to flash up on the screen. This is what Scientologists actually believe. Yeah. That's what this film felt like up until that very moment. And then you go, oh, no, we are still in Nazi Germany. We are still living through one of the worst periods in history. Yes, bad things are going to happen and it will feel random and it will feel injustice like it won't it will be a sense of injustice about it so yeah prepare for heartache i wasn't prepared for heartache i wasn't prepared for the amount of genuine emotion that was behind that moment and moments preceding it and following it and for it to be wrapped up in a zany comedy where hitler's played by a flamboyant new zealand man um yeah. I wasn't expecting to... Well, that's the thing. After Ragnarok, I was expecting to love it, and I did. So, yeah, Taika, you've, you've earned you've earned the um, the Edgar Wright Award for director we will follow anywhere. More on that later. Um, number six. Uh, this is where we find Onwards, which is a movie, I think, that benefits from, one, a second watch, and two, slightly more context. Um because I don't know if you've seen, um, Disney Plus have a good line in um, in documentaries. These are Disney documentaries about Disney, so don't go in there looking for controversy. But they, they did an inside Pixar one uh, very recently, um, and they interviewed quite a few people on there, including they had a guy, a, a writer they brought in for Soul when they felt they weren't getting an authentic enough um, black voice in the film. They brought him on to do some reshoots. So he was the guy that had in the barbershop scene in Seoul and, and a lot of stuff to kind of make it feel more um, more realistic to an approach to, um, you know, black culture. That was a great episode to watch. Um, and there was one about how Pixar have this software that counts up lines by men and women um, to hopefully show like, how little women speak and to kind of balance that out. They did it on Cars 3 and found it was like, something like 90% male voices. So they recast people, readdress stuff, and now they've got a nice parity. And this software is now used like across the board in Hollywood to kind of get to that point. Fantastic. One of them was about the guy who wrote and direct Onwards. Um, and it was like how it basically masked his own life of how he realised at some point later on in life, you know, his father died before he really knew him, like in Onwards. And he realised that, you know, he didn't really have that hole in his life because his brother stepped up and filled that void. And this is basically him retelling his own life stories, but through them, you know, a slightly more fantastical um, setting. And I think that context really helped because we we watched the documentary and went, right, let's watch Onwards again, just in case we missed something. And again, I don't think it's the strongest Pixar movie. Um, and again, as I've said with every entry, I don't know. This this maybe would have troubled the top ten, maybe, but all that together on the second watch, I did like it a bit more than I did the first time round. So this is why I bumped it up to number six. It was, yeah, it's it's a it's a genuinely, it, it's a probably a middle of the road Pixar movie, but I mean that's grading on the Pixar curve. 
a middle of the road Pixar movie is still better than 99% of the stuff DreamWorks has ever done. So <laughs> yeah, good for them. Yeah. I mean, other than Shrek, <laughs> um, oh, what God. they got. Uh, so that I, I I do think I mean I, I I went back and listened to our review of this and we were both kind of middling on it, but I I do think it is appreci- it is helped by a second watch. It's still not my favorite Pixar movie by a long stretch. It's, it's very much a, an average Pixar movie, but that's still a pretty good movie at the end of the day. And some of the animation in this, the Rubble Dragon in particular, they're just showing off. They're just they're just nailing down that best you know and anim- tech- they're nailing down all the technical awards for animation basically that's all they ever do in these movies like no 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 we're adding to we've expanded the trophy room again we need to fill it so have some rubble dragon uh, so that's why onwards is at number six that's fair it's much more agreeable than my number five will be to you please. oh that's going to be very interesting then okay uh-huh. let's get to my number six before we get to that trash fire uh, my number six is Hubie Halloween sorry no uncut gems <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. It was one of the two, sorry. No. Uh yeah, uncut gems. Um have you ever have you ever had like this is gonna sound weird, but have you ever had like a existing state of panic and fear like that just goes on for days that just doesn't um, shift? Uh not for days necessarily, but I have had this happen at football matches. Um so <laughs> I get it. I genuinely, once we were playing Blackburn, we were in command of the match, and I had a horrible feeling start in the pit of my stomach. I turned to my brother and said, we're going to lose this. This is the 75th minute. We lost 3-2. So I have had that feeling, but maybe not for days, because I don't think I could stand it for days, to be honest. I, if you can't stand it for days, I honestly can't recommend watching Uncut Gems, because it is just, it's a film of sheer panic from start to finish. Um, <laughs> and it's genuinely one of the most t- it, outside of my number two pick it's one of the most tense films i've ever seen bearing in mind nothing that tense particularly happens and it is almost kind of handled with a very much like a, it's happening over there mentality compared to my number two pick where the anxiety is in your face um the thing about this is that adam sandler's performance as howard ratner is absolutely career defining this is no joke his best role he has ever done it's his best bit of acting he has ever fucking done he nails the identity of this kind of jewish american diamond dealer who is completely addicted to gambling and risk and it doesn't matter whether gambling or risk is associated with a horse race or a deck of you know a a hand in blackjack consumes his fucking life so when he comes into the possession of this rare black opal diamond thing um obviously that is going to completely consume his his uh his thoughts his life and it just leads to the worst possible things that can ever happen he tries to win at every scenario in his life whether that is winning following his divorce whether that's winning with his new trophy girlfriend whether that's winning with his business against the people who actually work alongside him whether that's winning against his father whether that's winning against like there's genuinely a moment where he tries to outdo the fucking weekend like the actual singer the weekend um in this club scene about like trying to be the biggest fucking player there and yeah it fucking works it's so 
so works. It's just tense from moment to moment. There is a brilliant scene where uh, it's Adam Sandler and I believe it's uh, Judd Hirsch as his father-in-law and they are trying to sell this diamond they are they've what they have done is that they have placed this six-way parlay bet that they are almost definitely going to lose and therefore they have to give up a ring that they've somehow got from an uh, a football player played by himself Kevin Garnett um because you know Howard wants to win Howard wants to own all these things have the witches sit on it like a nasty little dragon and just be the most flush Jew in all of New York. And it falls apart piece by piece, pain after pain, that when you get to that final scene, when you get to the ending where Howard has locked people, like he owes money to loan sharks, and he has locked them in the security door of his own shop as he watches a football game, or is it a basketball game i can't remember he watches this game play out play by play and every moment on that pitch and it's just in a it's on a tv in the corner of the room and you're transfixed by every reaction every flinch whether it's from adam sandler or it's from the people who are trying to break their way into their shop to either get their money or get their revenge it's just it is tension incarnate it's so well written it's so well done I am genuinely surprised this didn't get any love at the Oscars, not for direction, not for writing, and not for Adam Sandler's performance. That felt like the biggest snub of them all. So I have to honour it here. It doesn't reach the top five, and because the top five is composed of films, I genuinely flat out loved. But it's as close as it can ever get, which you could count that as its next biggest snub, if you want to. Uh Number five is The New Mutants, and I don't apologise for who I am. Oh, it's bumped down one. It's bumped down one. Okay, that's fine. I, I I bumped it down by one. But again, ten through four are on a parity. So this is no better nor worse than Soul or Bill and Ted or whatever. Okay, that I take issue with. <laughs> I, I, I just think, I don't necessarily agree with, disagree with everything you said. I, I, I do think the ending's a bit snare. I just genuinely enjoyed the chemistry between people i i didn't come out this movie going uh undeniably there's scientific evidence and history to go off that i'm just an x-men mark and i always will be and and that's fine i'm allowed one pick a year where i'm just like look i just like x-men i just like spending time with mutants okay i the fact that it's one of the few films i got to watch in cinema is probably helping it as well that it was actually the first one i got to watch after lockdown so great um, I risk my life to watch the new mutants. Um, I mean, but... not at the cinema you go to. You don't have to risk your life there at all. No, you don't. No, we were good. Um, there wasn't anyone within five hundred foot of us. So <laughs> I, I just, I just enjoyed it. I, I don't think it's great. It isn't in the top ten of any of the year. But, but I kept going like, okay, did I enjoy Enola Holmes more than I enjoyed New Mutants? And I went. No, I didn't. Neither are fantastic, but I didn't enjoy one more or less. So that's why it finds itself at number five, that I just... I had a good time watching it. I'm probably going to regret this. When I finally watch more movies that did come out in some form or another in 2020, this will probably get bumped off the list entirely. But I don't apologise for who I am. New Mutants is at number five. Let's move on. Cool. Uh, we now enter the top five. 
uh, very happy about this because all of the films from here on out are just fucking great and I just really like them. Um, it starts with the film that I watched late last night. Now, I watched a film Ooh. last night that didn't make this top 10. We've already talked about it. It was The Five Bloods. It didn't make the top 10. I was very disappointed that it didn't because I was like, this gotta be, there's got to be a good Spike Lee film. Um, it turns out the good Spike Lee film of the year was actually made by Aaron Sorkin, and it's called The Trial of the Chicago 7. It's released on Netflix in, I want to say, September? Yeah, September. Um, it's a fucking stellar cast. You've got Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redmayne, uh We've got Mark Rylance, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Frank Langella, Michael Keaton. It's a great um, ensemble cast that make up this story. And what this is, is that what I enjoyed about Black Klansman, as you well know from uh, previous years, is that it was able to make a salient point about um, an old political event. Um, this was obviously the trial of the Chicago 7, uh, where seven people from differing um, sort of like progressive political groups uh, were trialed by the city of Chicago for inciting a riot, quote unquote. What actually unfolds is how everyone comes to realize that this case is nothing but a political show. It is a show of power by the American government and how that the idea of a political trial, not necessarily against your own actions, but against your ideals and your questioning of authority can still land you in jail. You can have the the best of all intentions you can try and stop people from you know rising up violently and if you're trying to make you know good points and quite salient observations about the state of your nation you can still get slapped down by big daddy government and you will because they will have the power um the absolute star in this for me is Mark Rylance, who plays William Kunstler, who is the he's kind of like the head of the defense council um, for the seven. There are actually eight people on trial. The eighth person being Bobby Seale, who's played by Yahab Abdul Mateen, um, who was like a chairman of like the Black Panther Party. But he was being tried with these people as a political juncture so they could get through his own conviction of attempted murder which never happened because this trial got him acquitted of that particular charge. There's a great moment involving Bobby Seal in this movie where he's gagged and bound and brought in shackles into the courtroom because he wouldn't stop saying, why are we going along with this trial? My lawyer is in hospital. I have no representation, but they just dismiss him at every opportunity. And it really cuts through the mood because otherwise this is like a quite, aggrandizing version of events that makes things feel like an action film despite the fact that there isn't an action scene sequence in it it makes discussions and the narration of events and the narration of you know a history of discomfort and hatred being met with political and progressive ideals of peace and how those ideals clash much like in a war and of course, all of these people are actually protesting the Vietnam War. That's what you've got to remember. The the protest scenes are treated like like large scale civil war battles. But it is, in fact, all because of America's involvement in Vietnam. That's where it felt salient, because it feels like we've been pushing for peace and we've been pushing for an end to suffering internationally at the hands of, you know, the most influential nation in the world. 
And when people say they don't want this and they don't want brutality to continue to exist, they're met with further and more deliberate brutality. This film says more about the Black Lives Matter movement this year than Spike Lee's film did that was directly referencing the Black Lives Matter movement. And that is saying something. I do think we don't give Aaron Sorkin enough credit as a director. He's a fantastic writer. I mean, The Social Network, he wrote that. Holy shit. He did get David Fincher to direct, which is probably what makes it such a good film. But Aaron Sorkin has got a good eye for directing. I don't want to call it an action scene because it was an inaction scenes. Like he, he constructs it so well with the right choice of music, the right choice of lenses, the right choice of shot composition, storytelling, visual storytelling. He can make anything feel exciting, even if it's just two people having an argument in a small room. There's something to be said for how well put together this film is. If this doesn't get nominated, at least for Best Director or Best Picture, and maybe maybe Best Supporting Actor for Mark Rylance, I'll be very surprised because there's very little outside of this that is really showing America for what it is at the moment and doing it in a way that not only makes sense as as a form of protest itself, but also as a piece of filmmaking. I genuinely want you to watch this one, Darren. It's so good. I think I'm going to. I'll put it on the list. Uh, Trying on the Chicago 7. Um, Yeah, I'm going to whack that on. That sounds interesting. Okay. Ah, Okay. Now, now, when I text Michael, when I was really struggling to put my thoughts down for a top ten, and I eventually abandoned it. Oh, just to illustrate how bad this list is, I sent you a picture of New Mutant sat at number four, and you were like, "What the hell?" And I agree. <laughs> um, so I sat down and thought, right, is the movie that is currently sat at number five better, considering again that anything outside that top three, I don't really care about. I was like. It made me laugh a bit more. So as I was editing my list last night, as I said, I was watching Forrest Gump, and a line happened that made me laugh so much, I was like, for this alone, it's going to move up. It's the bit where Forrest Gump is playing football, and he just keeps running, and he doesn't know to stop, and just plays through the band. And as I was... (laughs) As that happened, the coach stands up and goes, he may be the stupidest son of a bitch alive. Sure is fast, though. (laughs) And that is why Sonic the Hedgehog is at number four. <laughs> because as I wrote the word Sonic the Hedgehog, he said he may be the stupidest son of a bitch alive, but he sure is fast. I was like, yep, that's Sonic. Jesus. <laughs> any of a year, any of a year, this isn't a top ten movie, but at number four, it's Sonic the Goddamn Hedgehog. <laughs> oh, God. Which is somehow the third highest grossing movie of the year. Yeah, like right behind Bad Boys for Life or something like that. So, tell us, it's worldwide, it's number four. China topped the box office this year. A Chinese film is at number one. Then it's Bad Boys for Life, then Tenet, then Sonic the Hedgehog. Well, Tenet released enough cinemas to get on that list. Apparently so. Jesus. So, Megabucks Sonic the Hedgehog. (laughs) And again, if you never need more doubt that I'm a sycophantic fan of of Jim Carrey and don't care what he's in as long (laughs) as he's in it, I give you Sonic the Hedgehog at number four. Yeah, but it's probably the best care he's been for a good few years. It is. He's just, he's like gone, fuck it, I'm going back to the 90s. And he's just doing 90s Jim Carrey shtick to Dr. Eggman. And that's great. And yes, 
the whole film is just based on, well, why doesn't Sonic just run to San Francisco? But that aside, like, again, I went back and listened to a review. It was funny in parts. The action was all right. The biggest problem is that Sonic doesn't really look like he's there, but they managed to capture Sonic pretty well. Um, there's questions about how the speed works, but it wasn't unfunny. The action's pretty good. It's set up for a good sequel. It doesn't. It does a better job of doing service to Sonic than almost every Sonic game at this point. The vast majority of Sonic games, I would say, are much worse than this is. So, yep. I don't really have much more to say on it other than it's at number four. And the next three movies I can actually talk about with a lot of passion. Um, but yeah, that's where Sonic the Hedgehog sits for me. I should be mad, but I'm kind of not. Because <laughs> I really like Ben Schwartz as Sonic. It's sort of like, really great. I think that's basically why it's here. Of just like, well, they, they captured Sonic in all of his, you know, for better or for worse, that's Sonic. He's a bit annoying, but... <laughs> Sonic is a bit annoying. It's so, really like the good. gag where he doesn't know where San Francisco is, so he just runs in one direction, and two seconds later comes back like covered in seaweed. Yep, he's like, nope, it's not that way. Uh, any amount of further scrutiny, and this falls apart, but we're not going to do that. We're going to move on to your number four, so we don't ruin Sonic. <laughs> I have one question for you, Darren, when it concerns my number four. Go on. My question is... How does a bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman dropped ah. in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by Providence? I'm not going to do the whole thing. Uh, it's Hamilton, obviously. Oh. <laughs> Fair enough. I I abated from Hamilton for years. I knew I wanted to see it. I'd heard the opening number. I went, that show looks fucking incredible. I am now going to not watch it until I can see it in the best way possible. And for me, that would have been in a theatre. That's obviously not mm. the way that we could have seen it this year. And that's when Disney bought the fucking rights. And that's when the original cast recording got put on Disney Plus. And that's when I finally, finally listened to all of Hamilton in glorious 4K. And Jesus fucking Christ, it's such a good show. You can argue that this doesn't deserve to be as high as it is because it is not necessarily meant to be a film. I would say fuck off because I, I fucking love <laughs> Hamilton. The show itself is so well done. All like none of the numbers are sleepers. They're all great. I think maybe as you get towards the end of the second act, they kind of blend to one another because they've used the musical motifs for almost two and a half hours, two hours 45, I think. So it's a long show, but it doesn't drop the drama. It doesn't drop pace. The songs are so memorable and quotable and the characters are so defined. Even when David Diggs switches from Lafayette to Jefferson, they are separate entities. They are so well done. It's just such a good show. It, it is the musical I had hoped it would be. And actually, I didn't even I, I, I had problems in our initial review with the direction of the the movie version in that you do get a lot of cut together shots where they've had the cameras on stage they've clearly cut together um like rehearsal footage and the actual show in order to kind of tell a bit more of a visual story so there's a lot more zoom ins and stuff like that and you do miss the set moving and the stage literally rotating is lost in a couple of shots but i think if it weren't for those shots there wouldn't be much motion and i think if you if this was just as i asked for and i think i am wrong I asked for like the one camera setup so I can see as I would have been if I was in the theatre. 
if I was in the room where it happened, so to speak. Um, but that's not what makes it a good watch. It, it would it would suit me. It would suit me as a theatre buff so I can see every moving part. It wouldn't suit the general audiences. But I've rewatched Hamilton about five times, and that's not counting how it's completely overridden my Spotify end of the year. Um, I've listened to that album more than I care to admit. So I just fucking love it. I just think it's brilliant. I can't bring myself to put it right at the top because at the end of the day, it was never meant to be a film. But it is one, and it is now one of my favourite musicals, and it deserves to be recognised for that. I am so happy that we are now at my top three (laughs) and I can give a shit. So at number three, it's a beautiful day in the neighbourhood. Oh, that's a coincidence because it's my number three as well. Fantastic. Um, Yeah, this is a this is not what I expected to be at all, because well, this thing, it's kind of set up. They do a smart thing of playing on their expectations that have come around through horrible circumstances in the last few years of like kids TV presenters being monsters, essentially. So the setup in the trailer is it's okay. The setup in the trailer of like, we're going to see the real Mr. Rogers made everyone go, uh oh, because, you know, yeah. Savile um, <laughs> and Rolf Harris and so on. But Kids TV presenters are a bit sinister, and this was going to be like an expose of, of Mr. Rogers. But then I was like, well, I've never heard anything like bad about him. Not that I've, you know, spent hours trying to research Mr. Rogers, for God's sake. He's been dead for like 20 plus years, so that but i i that's how they set up and i think they do a really smart job on playing of that of kind of baiting you in and making you think that's what the movie's going to be about or in fact it's going to be largely about mr rogers because it isn't nope. it's largely about um your boy from the americans who's matthew name, reese and i'm not stalling matthew reese of course it is it's about matthew reese's investigative like journalist character taking what seems to be very simple messages said and, you know, um, preached by Mr. Rogers and kind of applying to his real life. He's the main star. Mr. Rogers is essentially an ancillary character in his own movie, mm. played to perfection by Tom Hanks. As I explained, like, I think it was you as I explained to you, like how Tom Hanks can be both 100% Tom Hanks, undeniably Tom Hanks, but also completely the character he's meant to portray as well. Yeah. It's weird how he can do both at the same time. Um, he has a fantastic job of kind of doing a Mr. Rogers impression, basically, and really nailing all the mannerisms down. But he's not the most interesting character because Mr. Rogers, it turns out, there wasn't anything sinister. There wasn't any, like, you know, skeletons in the closet. He was just Mr. Rogers, and he was trying to be a nice person. And there's nothing wrong with that. And kind of the realisation that Matthew Reese's character has of that fact and just seeing how being positive can have impacts on your life and how it kind of makes him reevaluate his um, relationship with his father and, and all that jazz. It's it's so well done. I'm so glad Matthew Reese is getting the spotlight now. I tried to watch Perry Mason, which was like his HBO series. It, we kind of fell off on that. It just wasn't holding our attention. Mm. But he's so, so good in this. Yeah, no, he's fantastic. This is like the peak of his acting ability for Matthew Reese. It's so, so well done. Um, I'm ashamed to admit this, Darren, but this film made me horrifically introspective. 
Um, really? Genuinely, this I was I was going in expecting a dramatization of um, "Won't You Be My Neighbor," which is the um, documentary that was made all about Mister Rogers' neighborhood. Um, mm-hmm. Which again, there were no skeletons in the closet. Just turns out he was a really nice dude, and that's the story. Yeah. Um, I went in expecting that. I came out with somewhat of a crisis of conscience and a crisis of my own personality because I wasn't ready to be faced with the realness of this is going to, this is going to come across as like oddly personal, but questioning my ability to be a father in the future and questioning my ability to face the differences I have with my own father. I was not ready for this. I was not ready for that realness and to have it, addressed in such a lovely film in such a film that made you feel warm inside and made you you know remember the human connection that makes life so good i was not prepared i'm not ashamed to say that i got quite teary during this film it really hit me home i came home and i think i had like an hour and a half long conversation with my then fiance now wife um about basically i came and was like hey do you think i would be a good dad and like and then emotions happened i was not ready at all but i'm glad i know i'm glad that the film did that i'm glad that the film made me think about um kind of like basically an abject human kindness and how that enables your ability to connect with other people whether that is through the tv show of mr rogers whether that is just in the people that surround you every day i uh Please take over, Darren. I'm getting introspective again. Of course you'll be a good dad. What the fuck have you been getting all those toys for all these years? Oh, yeah, good point. (laughs) Good point. Good point. (laughs) What was the point of the fruit padlocks if not to give them to a kid? (laughs) Uh, I think what it is is that there is, like, there's a sense of uh, Matthew Reese's character being disillusioned and a sense that he, he feels robbed of his own childhood and he never resolved it. Mm-hmm. And that is almost entirely down to his relationship with his father that then has just bled into resentment with not even necessarily a relationship with his own child, but like there's just unresolved family matters there. And for that to be bridged by somebody who is all about literally was never a bad person, was always about kindness, has never done, said anything wrong to wrong anybody who then finds a way to bridge over to his pain and help him resolve it. it was honestly some really beautiful acting in this film. It's fantastic. Give it a watch. Right, number two is where we find Jojo Rabbit. This is where it ended up on your list. It is. It's. I can give it the highest praise possible by comparing it to one of the Feral Entertainment Hall of Fame films. It's the only other film I know other than Four Lions to do what Four Lions does. Yeah. Of lulling you into a full sense of security. In the, because the, the, the bit of Four Lions that gets you is it's so funny and so silly that you forget what you're dealing with. You forget that you were dealing with terrorists who want to hurt people and blow stuff up. And it's not until right at the end when he walks into Boots that it kind of hits you with that. You have that horrible gut punch of like, oh, fuck, Jesus, I completely forgot where we were. It does that as well. You completely forget because you're dealing with an over-the-top city Hitler um, 
and how he has bulletproof legs and all that good business. And <laughs> the bomb-proof you know, legs. Yeah, oh, and Yorkie just being Yorkie, <laughs> and you know all these silly over-the-top characters that you completely forget you're in the middle of Nazi Germany, Berlin, and you know it lulls you into a false sense of security right until the bit you mentioned that I won't mention again in case spoilers that makes you go, oh fuck, <laughs> I completely forgot where we yeah. were, and that from a Tiger Waititi comedy. That is definitely the funniest film I watched this year by a country mile. Nothing even comes close. And to do all that and to still be able to hit hard with the drama where it needs to, to be able to switch gears as effortlessly as it does and it all be impactful, to still have a last right up until the death and have a good ending is such a hell of a balancing act. That yeah, that that this got him his card to the director, I will watch anything you do, um, Rolodex of just I, I was in awe of how well he did and I haven't watched it again because I just think will it be lesser because I, I know the gut punch is coming I don't think it will because it's still going to be very funny but yeah it's brilliant so many brilliant actors all the way through it's Stephen Merchant's over the top um, Gestapo person <laughs> with the Hail Hitler's hilarious um, any movie that can make Rebel Wilson like this funny yeah i don't even like sam rockwell in most things he's great in this. oh yeah he's fucking it's... brilliant isn't he oh it's yeah it's 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 unbelievably good it, it's it was one of two war movies that came out in january and even though it this height is the the lesser of the two but do not diminish from the fact that i think jojo wrote it was brilliant in that case i think we now need to talk about your number one movie because i'm Got a horrible feeling that it's my number two. Is it nineteen seventeen? It is nineteen seventeen. Oh I am interested to see what your number one is because I there is nothing within like a country mile of this movie for me this year. I watched it twice in a week and I didn't have to, but I was just like I, I cannot get enough of how brilliant this movie is up and yep. down. It ticks every box i needed to yeah this is what i was talking about this is the most tense film of the year no question oh yeah it doesn't fucking let up the entire time like it's two hours and you're on the edge of your seat for every single goddamn minute it is so well put together so well told it's so well structured it's it's a film that really only covers like the events of what 24 hours two days max uh, 24 hours, yeah, yeah fuck me he's just i know that like people talk about marvel movies existing like roller coasters like theme parks and yeah, yeah. you could really honestly levy the same complaint against this film in that it's a it's a faux single shot movie it's a selection of scenes very very neatly put together with very minimal cuts um and it is doing basically the first person shoot a movie in all but name and you would be surprised how fucking well that works oh my god the the action is fantastic the pace is just and i mean perfect pacing you've got the right amount of fear elation panic quiet like sentimental moments exactly where you need them and when so that you don't have a fucking heart attack at how tense the goddamn film is I just, I, when I went back and listened to her review, 
I had to nitpick to have negatives. I had to like pour over the one bit of like a time jump that I didn't appreciate because I didn't want to seem like I was just 100% overly glowing about this movie. But that those nitpicks are so, so tiny compared to everything it gets right. Like, because I worried I'd just like it as a like a technical exercise. Uh, like the the faux one-shot thing being so amazed by how they managed to pull that off. And that's why I really liked it. But the fact I went to see it twice in a week shows me that I was also invested in the great acting by both your leads. All the cameos are fantastic. None of them. There, there is so... It's such a tight movie. There is not an ounce of fat on this entire movie. It is just... It's as streamlined as as, as perfect as it needs to be because nothing misses. Everything hits for maximum impact. It is, or oh, no doubt in my mind, even if the rest of this year's slate had been released and this was going up against Marvel movies, it was going up against everything else, I cannot envision any other movie blowing me away like this one did. I'm still pretty sure The Street would have died this year with 1917 being the first non-Marvel or Star Wars movie to ever top a top ten we've done on this show because... I, I think it's brilliant. I think it's a masterpiece. I I I love it so so much. It's easily it's easily one of the best war movies I've seen. This it's a movie you look forward to showing other people. Yeah. Which I don't think is there's no better accolade than that of like I immediately went out. I found my dad. My dad doesn't like anything. And I like you see me having to list everything and have your favourites for everything and do I don't know where that's come from because my dad is the complete opposite he doesn't like a single thing i immediately text him and say go and watch his film i think you're gonna love it which may be the only the third time in history i've ever done that my brother whose review scale is maybe say if he watched a hundred movies there'd be 10 that are great 10 that are shit and then 80 that are all right the vast majority of films he's a terrible reviewer because you ask him about a film yeah it's all right so I immediately got him and went, you need to come with me and watch this movie. It's so goddamn good. And he loved it. So I, I cannot recommend it to more people. Anyone who even asks, like, oh, have you seen that 1917? I'm like, drop whatever you're doing. Go and watch it. It's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to it's hard to disagree with everything you said there. Because it is. But. But, <laughs> but to quote Yoda, there is another. Um, Go on. I have. Hang on. Okay. Give me a sec. What could this possibly be? <laughs> so, see if you get it when I describe. What, okay, on. so you know me. I like watching the Oscar noms. That's the entire reason I even watched 1917. Wait, hang on. Is it oh, for fuck's sake, Darren? Don't forget. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Let's just let's just cut to it. The Academy. Sorry, I've cut your legs <laughs> off there. The Academy rarely gets shit this right. It rarely understands how good films can be. It normally, and I mean, I watched every single film from every single category this time, and I can tell you that half of their decisions were bullshit. There has never been a film more deserving of best picture than Parasite. And because I genuinely believe this, it might not be my favourite film. It's certainly my favourite film of this year, but it might not be my favourite film ever. We all have our attachments to different films. I don't throw around the phrase masterpiece and perfect movie very often, but both of those terms can be attributed to Parasite. It gives you everything. And a, there's a kind of a staple in Korean and sort of like South Asian cinema, Bollywood, for example, where it kind of every film has to have a little bit of everything, a little bit of the 
comedy, a little bit of a musical, a little bit of romance, drama, thriller, horror, everything. Parasite does that and somehow doesn't lose focus. I'm not saying it has a musical section. Obviously, that was more that's more Bollywood than anything else. But Parasite is, in all intents and purposes, a drama, a comedy, a thriller, a horror, an action film. And just it works. It throws together all these genres and it does so flawlessly. There is a language barrier in this movie. It's a Korean movie made in the Korean language by a Korean director. And despite the language barrier, I know that those performances are fucking incredible. Like everyone in that cast is brilliant. The the plot concerning the idea of the the down on their look, poor family infiltrating and kind of like a little bit like a virus, ironically, um, starting to control and change the life of the naive rich family with the nice house. Even that is reflected in the way that this film is shot, how this film has been produced. The poor family live in a really shitty, uh, like dark palette coloured um, sub-basement. And they live in the lowest part of this city. The rich family live in the futuristic, brightly coloured, pastel, modern uh, townhouse, literally on a hill. They they couldn't be more different. And it just everything is told visually before it's told in the script, before it's told in the action. You get an immediate flavour of what this story is. And then it still has the audacity to have a fucking brilliant twist. Like a fucking phenomenal shift in this story. You think it's going in this one direction and it subverts you. This is how you fucking do it, Ryan Johnson. It subverts you (laughs) in such a magnificent way, in a way you don't see coming that makes it all the more tense, all the more gripping. There is a scene where the entire family have to lie under a table. And I genuinely think it's more tense than 1917. And that's a big thing for me to say. But in a film this perfect, it's fucking earned. It is so well done. I I know that genuinely speaking, generally speaking, sorry, Darren, this isn't a film I would recommend to you. I think maybe the the playing with genre might be a bit too avant-garde, so to say. I hate that fucking term, but it kind of is. It does play with genre quite really playfully. But the story is so strong. If you take it as a story of a poor family swindling their way up to riches and then being cut down by their own hubris, you then get to have that menagerie of different styles and scenes and direct and like direction of the camera completely changes in terms of all this mood. And it doesn't stop being so good. The sequence of the year and it might be the sequence of the fucking decade, if nothing else can top this, is the way in which they remove the maid from the house. Um, I don't want to spoil it too much. In ca- Do you plan on watching it? This is a number one on the things to watch before we go back to work. So it's it's probably best you don't spoil anything because i do have every single intention of watching yeah. this. yeah okay i'm not going to spoil it but for those who've seen it the way they remove the maid holy shit it is so well done and the thing is i know that this absolutely is a great film purely because this doesn't fit any of my parameters for good films it doesn't even fit any of my wife's good parameters of the films she doesn't even rate this in her top 10 because 
you know, it's all subjective. But you think about the films we put on top. They tend to be films with, you know, very large action scenes, well-known actors, um, you know, made in our in our own native tongue, made with franchises we care yeah. about. For something like this to come out of nowhere, to not really have any kind of place in the pop culture zeitgeist, to not have any build-up beyond all of a sudden in January, everybody was talking about this Korean film like it was the dog's bollocks. Let's give it a go. It's perfection. It's so well done. And I tell you why I don't I I'm the best person to listen to about this because I fucking hated Bong Joon-ho's previous film. So I don't have any preconceptions. I don't have anything that would give me um, any sign of external force over this film that I would like it before I went in because the previous film was Okja and I fucking hated it. The film before that was Snowpiercer and I thought it was middling at best. Bong Joon-ho. I might have to follow him anywhere he goes now because he's made mm. one of the most perfect bits of cinema I've ever seen. And it's genuinely startling how good it is with how little it has. I imagine the budget for this was actually quite big, but it just feels it feels like it's been made with a film in mind. It's like it ha- already had all these pieces. It was just how to stage the play so to speak it doesn't feel produced it doesn't feel overthought it just unfolds in surprising and brilliant ways i'm gonna have to stop talking about it there was our beer all day parasite easily my number one that's the mark to beat for this decade fucking hell so everyone's gonna have a good job trying to reach you i like some international films i like the raid (laughs) and of course the raid (laughs) 2 Yeah, I mean, the raid's pretty great, yeah. And that Shanghai something or other. <laughs> You're uh, about to say Shanghai Noon, the Jackie Chan film. <laughs> not Shanghai Noon. I can't remember what it's called. It's just mad. It might not be Shanghai. Anyway, um, okay, fair enough. Yeah, that is a number one to watch because everyone has said it's it's brilliant. If, if you've so got, I, I need... If you've got Amazon Prime, it is on there right now. And I think the black and white version is coming soon as well. Good God, watch that film. I will do. Three hours, my <laughs> It won't be after the edit, I tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Good God almighty, I hope you like air opinions. Uh, How was it we managed to say the most was... about a year where fuck all happened? <laughs> right? <laughs> Could you imagine if movies had actually come out this year? My God, we'd still be Jesus. going. Um, we'd still be on the worst. <laughs> so... <laughs> so I'd have my air and heart diatribe on Hubie Halloween, where I criticise every line of dialogue. Anyway... That was the Failed Entertainment 2020 list of best films. Plug away, You can go and find me on Twitter and Instagram and at that by Cohen. You can go and follow Darren on Twitter and Instagram and at the Goodridge. You can go and follow the site on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook under the username FowlyNT. That's F-O-U-L-E-N-T. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or wherever you can pick up an RSS feed under the username FowlyNT or FowlyNT Podcast, depending on the service you're using. And of course, go to FowlEntertainment.com to go and read all of our end of the year articles. Well, article, singular, if it's Darren. Uh, I think I might yep. need to put a few out because I've got a lot of opinions and I need to share them. Uh, yeah, next one is probably going to be the best of everything else. That's TV, music, um, video games, everything, because uh, that certainly won't take three hours. Um, then again, get, games might. <laughs> I don't games know. might. Thinking about it. It's been a lot of good games this oh. year. Holy shit. Um, right. It's it's going to be great. We have also going to have our uh, 2021 preview, 
which is as speculative and subject to change as human. Could we possible. not just literally copy paste all the content from the 2020 preview? I mean, probably, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's probably not going to be far back. I don't think we ever actually released a 2020 preview last year. So these will actually be some fresh takes for most people to have a listen to. But, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's subject to change. But hopefully more will come out in the next 12 months than in the previous. I mean, we at least got three fantastic movies edited from my side of things, so I'm happy with that. That's That's a pretty good... Score for Eddie, it's a free, genuinely fantastic movie, so I'm happy with that. But yes, all of that and more. Plus, a long-awaited um, pitch any Netflix movie you like movie, uh, a pitching podcast even, will be coming out very, very soon. It certainly will be, so do keep it... You don't tune the internet, but do keep it tuned to fanentertainment.com for all of that. Oh, man, man, it feels good to actually talk about shit. I think I've just enjoyed... Because there's just been an absolute absence of films. Like I'm just looking at how many reviews we did this year. So we did Jojo Rabbit 1917, Oscars, Sonic, Onward. Then you jump forward to Mandalorian, Hamilton, Eurovision, Umbrella Academy, Tenet, New Mutants, Bill and Ted. And then last week we did Mandalorian Season 2. It just doesn't feel like we've had spoken about anything. So I'm it glad I got sit- most of these opinions, especially for Parasite, off my chest. Because goddamn. God damn. Anyway, uh, we'll see you in the next episode, which will probably be um, best of the rest. And then we'll move into the rest of our end of the year stuff. And hopefully there'll be some stuff to review in 2021. Thank you for listening. Bye, everybody. Bye.